Hello and welcome to Triangle Squared Spoiler Chats. Uh, I'm joined again, if you are familiar with the last episode that we did with this new running series with Mr. Chris Figgs. How are you doing today, Chris? Doing well. How are you, Brett? I'm doing well. I know it's been a while since we did our last one. The Last of Us 2 episode was kind of a trial run to see it was appetite for this stuff to come back. And I'm happy to say that there seemingly is. <laughs> yeah, I was glad. I kept telling Brett, like, I need you to get me feedback. I don't care how you get it, but I need to know that they liked me. <laughs> <laughs> I need approval. <laughs> yeah, I just needed acceptance. Yeah. Uh, but... We are back, and we're going to start doing this a little more often. We kind of have an idea of what we're going to do. So stick around for the end of the show to figure out what game we're going to be doing next. But this week, we're doing something that if, if you've been listening to this show, or Triangle Squared, rather, for a long time, then you are not surprised. If anything, you're probably surprised that I've not done it yet. I was waiting for the right time and the right person. You know, you only get, <laughs> you only get one first time. And that time is going to Mr. Chris here. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite games of the generation, The Order 1886. The Order. And that sentence may make you go, what? <laughs> Made me go, what? <laughs> but the thing about favorite games is that they don't always have to be the best game, first of all. No. It's really interesting not. how that works out. But yeah, it's kind of like how you can have Twilight be your favorite movie. Yes, you can. And it's a good you choice. Know? Yeah. So it, it is what it is. Everybody sees their own special thing. One of the interesting things about this as we go to get into it, first of all, we will be completely spoiling The Order 1886 here. So it's a game that is often on sale if you've not gotten around to it yet and you are interested in experiencing it without spoilers, which I would say is the way to go. Get it for the five, ten, maybe max fifteen dollars that it is on sale for at any given time, and play through it, and then come back and give this a listen, which is kind of what we did with Chris. Chris bought it on sale. Yep, I had been wanting to replay it myself anyway, as it had been a year or two since I'd last done it, and it's a game I like to come back to and revisit. So I took the opportunity to kind of give myself a reason to play it again, while also giving Chris a reason to go ahead and play it. And that's how we landed on here. So, Chris, before we get into the real thick of it, yes, I kind of think I have a general consensus of your basic feel of the game. But, I mean, did you enjoy yourself with the experience? Did it meet any expectation you had set? Or did you not set an expectation given the length of time since its release to when you played it? And also given the budget at which went into it? My only expectation of the game when I started it was that it would be short. And it wasn't long. <laughs> so... That was definitely true. But outside of that, I always had the impression that it wasn't a very good game. And that was just the way that people talked about it. I don't think I agree with them, but I paid $5 for the game. So I think if I'd paid $60 for the game, I would have been very upset. <laughs> so do you want to know a fun trivia? What did you pay for like a super collector edition? You have Galahad's hat in your bedroom somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, but Galahad does not have a hat in this game. <laughs> I know. I, I um, knew that the second I saw yeah. it. <laughs> no, I actually, this was one of my most anticipated games. So much of it coming mm -hmm. together is just a basic idea when they were first showing it. Piqued my interest. Sure. It was also kind of a continuation of that idea of like a Uncharted style game where it's a tight linear game that knows what it's trying to do. So I was really excited for it. I pre-ordered not only did they have one collector's edition for it, they had two. Really? So I had pre-ordered both collector's editions that came with two different statues and I have them proudly displayed on set behind me. Wow. Okay. One of them was $99. And I think one of them was like $150. Mm -hmm. So 
Overall, I've paid more than $200 for this game. Yeah. To be fair, I sold the second copy of the game that came with the Editor's Collector's Edition to one of my coworkers for $50. Mm-hmm. There you go. To save him money and to get rid of it. So, yeah, I'm like at least $150 into this game. And from even the first day that I got home, put it in and could not finish playing it until I finished it, yeah. I walked away from the game so fucking happy. I don't even know what to say other than that. Like For me, first time playing through is about mm-hmm. 10 to 11 hours for me. But that was also fueled by tiredness and a willingness to explore all the game had to offer. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> so... It is interesting. I know that whenever I talk about it and recommend it to people now, it is under the auspice of you can let go of all of the negative talks that this game had because most of them in a lot of people's eyes was about the value proposition of the game. Uh So when you're coming into it under this idea of you paid $5 for it, $10 for it, maybe even $20 when it got down to that point. I think the moment for me personally, even though I did get every bit of money out of it, when I started seeing the opinions online about the length and the worry about it being $60, it did cross my mind of while I feel I got $60 worth out of it, if you don't think about the like collector's edition statues, mm-hmm. I could understand where people are coming from. And I do think that if Sony were smart, they would have put it in the $40 price point. And I think that it would have been given a little bit more fair treatment because of such that's fair i would just say that sony price destruction all-stars at 69.99 so i don't know they're not that smart i guess (laughs) well while we're on the topic of price because you're right right that's that's a game that nobody's really seen it doesn't seem like a next gen full price game which is what sony's saying is that some of the games will be that 69 dollars. i guess the best way to put it in my opinion it looks like a free-to-play game you know it looks like fortnite and you see that and then you see no gameplay and you see no information and then you see 69.99 you go i'm not buying that and then they delayed and put it on <laughs> ps plus because everyone said i'm not buying that <laughs> saul was talking about it because the little bit that we did see right is he said it, it's it looks like twisted metal and i said yeah it's it's fortnite twisted metal yeah it looks fun which, if I'm being honest, one of the things I've said many, many years ago, once Battle Royale-style games were coming around and Fortnite was starting to launch its Battle Royale mode, I thought that the idea of a Twisted Metal Battle Royale made a lot of sense because that's kind of what the game already was. I agree. <laughs> but yeah, you know, when you think about the pricing things, Sony has a very weird history of pricing. And if I'm being honest, thinking back on it, I find it weird and kind of against their typical pricing scheme at the time to not price it at the 40. Like Mm -hmm. I could definitely see why they went with 60 because they're trying to push it as this big next gen tech. But when you look at prior to that, right, you see, or even similar time period around it, you see Ratchet and Clank come out. Ratchet and Clank is $40 game. Yeah. Roughly the same length of time and roughly the same basic idea. It's a very linear game that goes through and knows what it's trying to do. Then you see on the PS3 beforehand, we see games like, uh, I want to say PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale was a $40 release. And if it wasn't, I know for a fact that Sly Cooper Thieves in Time was a $40 release. So they had already been experimenting with pricing. And it seems weird not to do it here. I think it comes down to that classic don't shoot yourself in the foot by underpricing a game and making someone think it's worth less than you want it to feel like. But I think that that kind of tricked them around into getting a game that felt overpriced to many. Yeah, I mean, I guess we can get into how we feel about it because that's kind of where I my next point was going to go. If that's cool with you, or there's plenty of things I want to talk about and cover, but yeah. I 
blurbed about this game so many times that I definitely just want to want to give you an opportunity to just talk about it in any, you know, I mean, if there's a format you want to follow or something like, you know, a way that you want to go about it that feels comfortable to your experience, I'm, I'm down to hear it. No, I just wanted to say that, like, while I liked the game, it felt to me like the next step of Telltale if they hadn't been as badly managed as they were, you know? You almost see the DNA of this in something like The Walking Dead Season 1 where most of it is story because that's the thing I noticed in this game because I did the Platinum and I had a guide because I play like that. And I noticed that there were only collectibles in certain chapters Mm -hmm. and then the other chapters were just cutscenes, really you yeah. know so yeah one of the big things about this game is that there is an entire chapter that is nothing but cussing right which is not inherently a bad thing yeah. but i just thought it was interesting that this it felt to me like you take the little shooting sections in like a walking dead season one and you make them fun <laughs> and you have the order 1886 obviously different story better story and eh? arguably better story but either way this you have a better game here but i think that's the problem with pricing it at 60 is that this is just a telltale game with better action sections so and i never really thought of it this way though i think it is fair point that you're giving it i think if i was going to take it under that basic idea right i think i would look at something more like heavy rain or beyond two souls or even detroit become human and say it's it's more like that because it's it's obviously much higher production values it's chapter based of course but not like in an episodic format and when you go through that the reason i say that is you know whenever i saw the game and i I mentioned it earlier that this always had and even playing it i think it's clear that it's a darker take on this idea of doing something that's in the vein of an uncharted one or two you see a lot of that inspiration on its sleeve and it's fairly obvious that that's what inspired them to do it even if you really think about it one of the things i like about the game so much is the idea that uncharted 2 brought forth which is start in the future at a, mm-hmm. a at an event that you don't fully understand, yeah. work your way back, and then let's build up to that moment, and mm-hmm. then let you keep playing after that moment. Of course, we see it in storytelling, in in all sorts of mediums. We see it in movies. We see we hear like we we can read it in books that way. But it's clear that game wise, that wasn't a very common thing until Uncharted decided to make a much more cinematic game. And I think if you see anything about this game, it's that they had an idea of what if we took Uncharted to the next basic level of being the ultimate cinematic experience. And you see that even reflected in the choice of gameplay. You know, we see it be a third person cover based shooter. Yeah. So I guess where I'm going with your thing is that you have this thing where in some ways, I think it is fitting to compare it to something like a, on the furthest end away from it, something like a walking dead or any telltale experience, but honestly a little more closer to it. Something like a beyond two souls is probably the most apt one sure. because you have full free control of your character. Whereas heavy rain was like you, you'd move the characters, but it was always with a prompt mm-hmm. instead of you having full 360 control yeah. in every section. So yeah, if you kind of take both of those gameplay styles and the fact that one is focused on a blend of story action characters and all that stuff going on and then you have one that's focused on those things but in a very tight narrative story driven sense you kind of do get the order yeah i guess i could see that i don't know to me i just feel like heavy rain in those games have a little bit more gameplay in the down moments than this one does 
but that's just my opinion. Maybe in the down moments, I'll, I'll give you that. But I think that it counterbalances itself by having so much more gameplay in the gameplay heavy sections. That's definitely fair. And I guess that's why in my mind it's so hard to pull it towards something like a Telltale Games. Yeah. Because they're so and it's not for it's not a bad thing, kind of like we're talking about here, you know, these don't have to be negative traits. No. I like a lot of the Telltale games. Me too. And you kind of get into this thing of if you know that you're going into something with the expectation of how it's going to play, or if you're going into something like I did with the order with a generally open mind and an expectation to play a very linear experience, I still feel like I got my money's worth out of it. But I understand when I'm going to play something like a Telltale game that the only gameplay I'm really going to get is moving my character around and making decisions. Yeah. That is 99% of the game. That's definitely fair. Absolutely. Yeah, whereas this feels more like you have those moments that feel like a ratchet and clank with the interesting weapons or and then mixed with an uncharted with the cover based shooting. Yeah. Um, you know. No, definitely, definitely. So while we're on this point, right, it leads us to the obvious thing that is a conversation that's been going around gaming for a while, right? Is this idea sometimes it's viewed in a positive sense of like games are aiming to be more mature and more cinematic. And then sometimes it's viewed as a negative of game creators. Some can be obsessed with the idea of making a game that is essentially like a movie or Mm -hmm. so adhered to what they expect from a movie. Where do you kind of land on that with this game? Yeah, I think it's basically what you're saying. It's a movie where you play the set pieces. Yeah. Going back to Naughty Dog talking about Uncharted, right? That was always their goal with Uncharted. That's definitely true. I think the problem with this, and I could I could be misremembering, but I don't think I am, was there's a lot of sections without any gameplay. Whereas in Uncharted, there's always you're always at least pressing X. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas no, you're this, completely right. There's a lot of like just holding it up, which I think is the difference. Where like to me, it almost brings maybe a tangent. We don't have to go off on this, but it almost makes me wonder about the possibility of you rent this game for 10 bucks and when it's done, it's done and it's gone. You know? Yeah. That would almost be interesting if you had these kind of tiny, small bites, not necessarily bite-sized. I wouldn't call this bite-sized, but you know, between lunch, lunch and dinner, snack sized games where you don't have to pay full price. You don't necessarily even need to keep them. Like I'm not going to do anything with the order now. I'm never going to, I might never play it again. I know you probably will, but <laughs> <laughs> I most certainly will. You think I'm kidding. It's been about a month since I played it. And of course our schedule just kind of lining up. I guess maybe it's been three and a half weeks. I don't know. But when I knew that we were going to record again, I clearly know the game well, but I was like, can I squeeze in playing through the whole game again <laughs> before we recorded? <laughs> That's awesome. I will admit that I am a bit of a junkie, but I think that it comes down to, again, this idea of expectation, right? And I think a lot of people built this expectation, and I'm not going to say wrongfully so, because it's there's definitely an argument that it's a rightful expectation as you transition into a new gen. And when you have a game that's supposed to be the poster child of a new gen, right? It makes sense to look at this. And even Sony, I can understand when they're telling this game to go forward and being made is they're looking at the reception to something like Uncharted. They're looking to the fact that people during the PS3 gen like these very tight experiences that are very linear, but that's okay. But 
one of the big things going into next gen, and if you think about the same year that this came out was the same year that The Witcher 3 came out. And regardless of what you feel about The Witcher 3, <laughs> it's a much larger game. Oh, and yes. There's so much more to do. And a value proposition for The Witcher 3 being $60 versus this being $60, if you're trying to look at them as content is king and one is just this long versus this one this long, then this game pales in comparison. Yeah. Well, I think getting a little bit away from the game here with what I'm about to say, so I apologize, but I think it kind of puts us in that conversation of we need fungible pricing for video games, and we don't have that. You know, everything is either 59, 29, or 39, or 19. You know, but you know what I mean, where there's no real sliding graph there of like we can go, okay, this game is 35.99, this game is 7.99, this game is 8.99, and that's not in the mainstream you know you see that with this indie game is 59 or is 5.99 but why isn't ubisoft giving me a assassin's creed game that's 29.99 i think that would be the perfect scenario and i think that would help this game if we had a more sliding scale of price where sony would have felt comfortable charging 19.99 or 29.99 for this game i certainly understand where you're coming from there i think i would push a little bit back that as I kind of mentioned earlier in the show, right, that we saw Sony experimenting with price even on full releases. Definitely. Even in the PS3 days, like before this game ever came. And then in the PS4 days, we saw them really experiment with the idea of pricing. So much so to the fact that we've seen multiple games hit very interesting price points to me. I mean, looking at recent memory, right? I mean, if you think about Mac 1 was a $60 game, which <laughs> I think, again, arguably, I, again, paid $60. And I do have a slightly more disposable income than some so that might be part of it that definitely plays into my enjoyment i have multiple 60 dollars to spare if needed and some people don't and there really comes down to i spent the only 60 dollars i had for this month or for this three month period on this game and it didn't give me the value proposition that i thought definitely um, that, so that that happens but i think right knack was a 60 dollar game this was a 60 dollar game and I think that there is a, a good argument that both of these would have excelled a lot more at thirty nine ninety nine and still made Sony the money that they were probably mm-hmm. hoping to make out of it. But when we go forward, I feel like Sony learned a lot from both Knack and this game. I agree. Because we saw Knack 2 come in at thirty nine ninety nine. Right. We've seen things like the Medieval remake, which is a very sensible move to come in at twenty nine ninety nine. We saw yeah. the remake of Shadow of the Colossus come in at thirty nine ninety nine. I feel like we've really seen certain publishers, Sony mm-hmm. being one of them, really push the envelope of what is an acceptable price for a, a game release these days. Yeah. And that's why you see games like Maneater coming out at fifty dollars. <laughs> well I'll be honest with you, as I was saying it, I was I was disagreeing with myself. But <laughs> the thing is what I mean is more at the time that wasn't a thing. At the time it was definitely more the rare than it's become. Well, my the thing I would say that's a little maybe a bold prediction. I don't know if prediction because it wouldn't happen, but I think if this game had come out at twenty nine ninety nine at launch, Sony buys Ready at Dawn instead mm-hmm. of them leaving and going to Facebook because this game is a, gets nines across the board. Problem is they charge sixty dollars and then they talk about this as a showcase game, where instead it should have been this is a showcase game for what we can do, and it's more of a tech demo than anything else and the game is more than a tech demo but if you'd sold it that way of this is what the ps4 can do and it's 29.99 and the story is great the gameplay is great 
but it's not you're not getting you know a gameplay heavy game you know you have need for speed rivals or kills on shadowfall for that but if you like telltale or quantic dream you're gonna like this one if sony has sold it that way like i said ready at dawn is a sony studio and we're probably getting the order 1888 at ps5 launch that's my that's what i think about the price thing yeah i'd say you know my last thing on the price, and then I'll kind of talk back to what you just kind of swung out with, right? I think one of the things that really put pricing to where it was as the transitional period between these two generations is that for a long time, AA was a, a staple of the gaming industry. There was yeah. always a AA company out there, but the 2008 crisis brought a lot of companies down, and even the ones that survived, like THQ, ended up wrongly investing in the to leapfrog. <laughs> basically the you draw tablet and that's what brought thq down and the thing is is that with the lack of any real double a publishers in that three or so year period uh between thq going down before really coming back with a new publisher that everyone was unsure of even something like focus home interactive which still existed back then they yeah. were in a very weak spot they didn't really have a lot of games that people viewed as must-haves and so you had this thing where there was a there was just no double a games coming out and that made the market feel like the only things that existed in the market were either indie games or full price triple a games yeah and i think it was at its worst at that time point because <clears throat> it felt like there wasn't room for something in the in between even though sony had done it just a few years earlier absolutely it, it really does and I, you're right like one of the things you said is if sony had sold the game like this is what we can do with the ps4 that's and I, I know you're not saying otherwise but that is what they did with this game but they did it with the 60 dollar price tag yeah and i would i wouldn't say wrong messaging and the reason i say that is clearly i beat the game and didn't feel like i had been wronged at all no. but maybe the messaging could have been even more to the point of letting players know what they were getting into but to kind of go off of the last thing you said and we can kind of swing into from there i do think that there is an interesting setup and an interesting story where if priced at the right point even 39.99 i i still think i mean i'm, I'm with you 29.99 probably would have been amazing but I have a question out of one and just a statement for one. So I think at the $39.99 price point, this game was much less polarizing. Yes. And I think that this game, at least even if Ready at Dawn weren't bought yet, this game would have for sure had its next sequel out by now. Definitely. And we would have seen something that I'll get into in a second. But I think the other question I want to have for you is, Mm-hmm. A lot of people's question here, and I know that me and you are very similar in this regard, I think, though you play more than I do. <laughs> a lot of people have this idea that if this game would have included a multiplayer mode, much like we saw with Uncharted 2, and if anything, the fact that this game is so clearly inspired by Uncharted 2 and chose not to do a multiplayer mode is interesting. Mm-hmm. But do you really view this game as a game that would have had a multiplayer mode or having a multiplayer mode would have honestly changed much of its fate? That depends on the multiplayer mode, because if you're telling me, oh, yeah, we have a, I don't know, a hero shooter with these characters, like, I'm not interested in that. But Mm -hmm. if this was 1v4, one person is a a lichen, the other person has, you know, you're you're a squad of knights, maybe. But I don't think traditional multiplayer would have helped this game. I don't think it needs it. I think what killed this game was Sony's Sony talking up the expectations and the price. 
So can I pitch you real quick on my idea for multiplayer mode if they yeah, were go for it? Because the weird thing for me is like going back again to Uncharted 2, which will be referenced a lot in this. Uncharted 2's multiplayer is very simple. Yes. It was also very fun and it surprised me, much as most of Naughty Dog's online modes have, uh, surprisingly. Uh, but in this world, I actually really do like kind of what you're talking about, this idea, and it's a shame that they would have probably been pulled off of doing it due to how bad Evolve handled. Yeah. Uh, but Evolve setup or any of the setups of that idea of asymmetric where it's you know, pulling into the lore with the multiplayer mode, much like The Last of Us does, that would make sense, actually. I do like that idea of having one person being a lichen and playing like a lichen and mm-hmm. setting up the play style for that and then having four knights that are having to go against it and a squad. That would be really cool. Yeah. Co-op horde mode with nothing but a bunch of you know uh, the lichens and maybe even introduce vampires as a gameplay mechanic there but even if it's just likings it's, it, it'd be fun and interesting but let's i'm going to pitch you on the idea of a more traditional multiplayer mode okay so you're not playing a hero shooter okay you're playing more of something that's i don't want to say along the lines of call of duty i feel like that's just a weird way to go about it i'm going to say something more along the lines of something you might not have played resistance 2 did not play it not okay. enough. So my idea here is that one of the things that this game is clear clearly has a lot of room for is that the idea that the order as an organization exists, and clearly there's a finite number of actual knights who are knighted in and given the name of their predecessor. But as we see with Lafayette, yeah. there are people who clearly work for the order, many people, but they're kind of understudies meant to be moved up when a soldier finally dies you know and is is relieved of yeah so in that setup right i like the idea of looking and being that you have a bunch of people around here and you're playing with your even if you make your own you don't have to but you know you're playing with your own knight and you're going around and you can be fighting each other or you could do factions where it's knights versus the resistance that are in the game Mm mm-hmm and you can set it up. The only reason, the only reason I wouldn't necessarily want to rely on the resistance is that the knights would have an unfair advantage of pulling the black water in. Yes. So my yeah, my basic pitch is pull that lore stuff together. Either give us a mode with no black water where it's the resistance versus the knights, and play more into that storyline and create like a meta story, like The Last of Us does, mm-hmm. where we're seeing the power struggle of these two kind of move. And you set up an idea where, like in The Last of Us. You wanted your camp to continue to thrive, and you wanted the other team to kind of go down. Yes. And I think that would be cool is if you had a play where, like, when you go to log in, you see how well the Knights are doing, the Knights of the Order versus how well the Resistance is doing. Right, right, right. And you kind of have that pseudo-narrative play out, and you can have little cutscenes or even voice clips or whatever. Just something small to give you a reason to keep going. And then go through and play that. Because I think one of the things that this kind of leads into a discussion of is that for the game, the gameplay, the gunplay, is actually very satisfying to me. I think it feels fantastic. It's snappy. It's responsive. And there's a host of really interesting guns. I agree with that, for sure. But one of the one of the problems a lot of people have with the game is that even though all those exist, because the game is shorter, it's not that you you don't get that much time with all those guns. But if you pull those into a multiplayer mode, then suddenly you do. I think my only problem with it is just that... I would rather this game do something more interesting than that. That's not bad. You know, I think the idea is good on its on the surface, but to me, I think you get lost in just other multiplayer. You get lost in Uncharted 2, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So for me, I would like that. I would definitely have played that. Whether I would have stuck with it or not is a different story. But but I guess I should say, do you think the optics of a multiplayer would have added a, even if it wasn't real value, right? Like even if it turned out that it was bad, do you think it would have feigned value enough to get over the hump of this, the problem of the game being $60 with a finite, most people will play it once for again the the speed run game playthrough of like six hours and some odd minutes yeah um my honest answer would be no because i think unless the multiplayer is great people would have just looked at it as okay your game is six hours you have mediocre multiplayer why didn't you concentrate on one of them and then (laughs) i feel like the game would have been worse off so to be clear, I don't really, I, I'm not really of the idea that the game should have had multiplayer. Yeah. I just find it interesting that at the time multiplayer was an expectation and they went against the grain to not have it. Yeah. Last talk about multiplayer just because it crossed in my head while I was talking about the interesting weapons. Mm-hmm. We do one that is like a uh, arena based game where you've got to run and the best weapons are in set spots. And as soon as you spawn, you got to run around and try and get to the best guns See, quickly so that you can control the map. That actually sounds fun. <laughs> like you have the arc gun in the center and you're going to yeah. try and get that. And then there's at the other end, there's a, you know, a thermite rifle. Halo 1886. I'm super down for that. <laughs> I was thinking more unreal tournament, but I mean, Halo certainly works too. Either way. Yeah. I almost thought, you know, we should probably go multiplayer because it's not in the game, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought of almost like a battle Royale where like you have your set of knights and you're fighting against other knights and then you can keep, the Blackwater as like that's your revive you get one per game kind of thing that yeah, would be see cool. I thought about that my only problem with that is why would the knights be fighting the knights at least within Training. this story I mean the resistance does get access to those guns in the game sure but they don't have the Blackwater yeah that's true that that's why I think the imbalance that would happen there would be really interesting yeah but that's one of those things that games just you go oh the resistance has a supercharged EpiPen that Nikola Tesla gave them that's <laughs> that brings them back to life and then you're good you know yeah because death is obviously an allergic reaction <laughs> <laughs> well epi pens give you adrenaline <laughs> i know i'm just messing I, i've watched the new nightmare on elm street movie they use an epi pen to wake up <laughs> yeah you know la- last thing on that i'll give kind of to the multiplayer then we can move on yeah for uh, sure. but i you know i think that one of the big things is that for me personally, as someone who doesn't play a lot of multiplayer, so don't take my opinion at large. <laughs> no, definitely. I think that I always have a problem when I feel like the lore of a game is not accounted for in the multiplayer, and it doesn't make sense that these people would be fighting each other. So if you mm-hmm. if you do knights against knights, I need to have some kind of a lore reason that explains why they're fighting. And what's interesting is that while we're already know we're spoiling the game clearly the order is not in the best spot right now and i think that the interesting part is in a future game there is room for a multiplayer where it's knights versus knights i was about to say the same thing defected knights that are out doing their own thing versus the real knights but this game is just not quite there and i feel like it would have been so weird from a lore and world building consistency to have that in this game though i'll at least give the credit they could have because in the story you see multiple people who are defected and have their own blackwater capsules but are obviously not not nice yeah i mean you could have just said like oh you know i think it's lafayette the very french Mm -hmm. guy yeah who lets uh galahad go at the end he's like listen he went and joined galahad this is galahad's knights versus the the orders knights you know yeah certainly have it done 
And I think the only reason that you don't do that right is that multiplayer naturally will have people that jump in it beforehand. Right. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. You have to spoil the end and then you have to change the end so that Lafayette does leave. But yeah. Yeah. So moving on from multiplayer, <laughs> of, this, <laughs> of which this game doesn't have, <laughs> I, I do think that one of the cool things about these discussions, right, and us kind of being able to talk about this, is it not only is it kind of a review of the game, it's just a general read of our thoughts and kind of opinions on the game, and that includes the ability to kind of postulate on what could have been in certain areas. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and that's, that's fun about these conversations. So I think what I kind of want to look at going forward is kind of a transition off of what you had mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation about this being uh, Sony viewing this and kind of billing this as a show of what the PS4 can do. And more broadly, I think what the, I guess, group of gamers expected out of it, you know, the industry as a whole from the consumer side looked at it as an, it was being treated as not only a show of what PS4 could do, but what next gen can do. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think and that's why I'm real curious as to where you stand on this. If you picked up on any of these things or if you're so removed from them that you don't think of them in the same way. But even playing it this time and looking at it in this very particular way, this game did a fantastic job of showcasing what to expect from games from this generation that set right. itself distinctly apart from what we saw specifically on the PS3. To kind of start with a couple of those, and I'm curious as to how you feel about a couple of them. One of the things I thought was really interesting is that there was a push towards having great, sleek UI design. Uh, and I think this game's UI is, is fantastic. It's minimum, it's stylistic, and we've seen that happen throughout this gen, where last gen UI was very hideous and big and ugly often. And then this gen, it tends to be much smaller, more stylistic, which is, a cla- of course, what this game has. Yeah. One of the other things, though, I think, is it kind of comes in immediately in this game. This game brought staples, I would say, of what this generation was. If you think about it, all cutscenes in this game were in real time. They yeah. were all in engine, and they just switched to high you know, poly models, something that definitely was rare in the PS3 and didn't look very particularly good. So that's for sure something. It saw the seamless transition from the menu screen to gameplay with absolutely no loading like we saw in God of War and plenty of other games this generation where as soon as you hit play, the game starts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw that in this game. Uh, and in case you didn't notice it, of course, the, the menu screen is on the water that uh, Sir Galahad is being dunked into. I did not notice that, actually. That's a really cool detail. Yeah. So if you look, it's on that. And then as soon as you hit start, you see the camera kind of pull up into the water that's getting shaken and you see his hand, his head gets slammed into that water. There's absolutely no transition. That's really cool. I did not yeah. realize. Um, it leaned heavily into post-processing effects to help give it the final image product that is a big thing this generation. I think from a tech side, if you're a big techie, you, that'll mean more to you. But a lot of what this game did to achieve its look was post-processing to give it the looks. And that's something that games across the board have always done. But we've seen it pushed to a real far extent this generation with things like depth of field, uh, per object motion blur, stuff like that. So if you're a techie, that'll mean more to you. I don't want to spend too much time on it to weigh it down and stuff that's a little more complicated. (laughs) But a lot of that is stuff, again, that we saw come to a real head this generation. And I think for the most part, in my opinion, I think it it succeeded in setting the bar for next gen 
And it's interesting because it didn't necessarily succeed in a gameplay standpoint. And I think that that's the kind of tell of two games that this, that this is going on here is that you have on one hand a game that I think absolutely does so many things that you expect from a next gen game in the way that it's built, the way that the things actually function in the background, the tech side of everything. But then you move into gameplay. And I think that people expected to see a style of gameplay that pushed forward as well. And instead, what we got was I think good gameplay mechanics, but they were gameplay mechanics that were popular from the previous gen, like the QTE reliance during the stealth sections, yeah. during cutscenes, you know, your attempt to try and stay interactive, like when in a cutscene suddenly you have to hit triangle or something. Mm. Those are things that we saw in the PS3 era. And even though we're seeing them here in this nice, pretty coat, they're not the worst thing in the world. But when you're having this, we're a brand new game on a new system and you look so beautiful and you're showing us from a tech side what you can do. From a originality of gameplay standpoint, it did feel stilted or at least like a just a really damn pretty last-gen game. No, I agree with that com- completely. It, it did feel that way. That is a little old gameplay, I guess. But the thing is, I, I've never been a big anti-QTE guy. So I, I think they're fun. I don't... They're not, I guess fun's not the right word, but they're definitely interactive, I guess. Well, I think you said it earlier about a different game, but you kind of nailed the head, right? Yeah. Is that Uncharted, when you're climbing around in that moment-to-moment gameplay, you're not doing anything. No. But you feel like you're interacting with the world, which somehow makes it work. Right. And for me, that's what the QTEs do here. I understand that in the grand scheme of things, I'm not doing something, but they are, I am, but I'm just doing just the bare minimum. (laughs) Yeah. You're not playing necessarily. Yeah. But it still gives you that feeling of needing to be on like the edge of your seat. And I guess that's why I liked the, and I'm not saying that they weren't old by then. We saw them back in like Resident Evil (laughs) four, but the idea of having QTEs that pop up in the middle of a cutscene kind of always makes you have that feeling of, you never know when something's going to happen. I've got to have the controller in my hands because it can pop off at any moment. And I like that. There's a level of immersion that comes with that to me. But I understand at the same point that it felt dated. It does. But it's one of those things. Like it, like you said, it's immersion. It helps you from, oh, there's a cutscene. I'm going to put my controller down. You know, I'm going to check my phone. It keeps you like it keeps you focused, which is definitely it definitely helps. Like I. I'll miss stuff in games if there's a cutscene going on. Like in children, yeah. I'm playing Children of Mortar right now. I couldn't tell you anything that's going on in that world other than there's a curse because <laughs> the cutscenes play out and I look at do something else because there's nothing for me there. I don't have to do anything and I don't care. Whereas even if I didn't care about the story, just the fact there's QTEs means that I would take in the story. It's because it kind of invites you to have to do it. Exactly. You know, I think a good example, right, of where I think the QTEs actually do help. One of the moments that always comes to mind and a lot of the moments that people actually point to in in particular during this game is they called them forced stealth sections with QTE. I'm not saying that they're wrong. It's exactly what it is. It's a forced Mm -hmm. stealth section and the stealth is all QTE based. But going into the air blimp, you're going through the top part and you're having to sneak around and knock out or rather kill (laughs) all of the guards. (laughs) Which is interesting from a story standpoint, but you're having to handle all the guards and you're supposed to be doing so covertly. Mm -hmm. But in that scene, when you're going through, there's a part where you and Lafayette get up to the front of the uh, one that you're on and 
when you're going, you have Lafayette open the door, you have a grenade, you pull it and you throw it in and it smokes everybody out. Then you open the door and it gives you a QTE moment to where you have to blackwater aim and shoot everybody in the room. Yes. That could have been done entirely as a cutscene. I personally appreciate that the game gave me some sense of agency and interaction in that moment instead of just letting it be a movie. And I, all I see is him do a cool thing. Like, you know, the Uncharted 4, of course, is a big show of the idea of every moment that you see on a screen during a movie, you should also be able to do in real time in the game. All the things that look like you, there's no way you could pull that off, like being dragged around in the mud in Uncharted 4. And that's a kind of what this does. It's not to the same degree as Uncharted 4 to where it's completely hands-off and it's all just, you, you know, you're making the decisions, but it's it's nestled right there in between. And you're right. That's definitely a place where QTE shines in that moment because it's fun. You know, those, those sections, especially in, like, Call of Duty games, I always find difficult when you're breaching buildings because they're disorienting. And I like the <laughs> yeah. way a QTE does it where it's like you just press R2 and you'll kill the people. Whereas in Call of Duty, it's like, oh, I got to aim while there's a flashbang going and it's in slow motion and someone's throwing a chair at me and there's blood on the screen. It makes it more difficult where doing it as a QTE here made me feel like I was doing something cool, even though it was just a cutscene. You know what I mean? Well, it's weird because like the scene in particular is kind of it's more than just you're going to hit R2, R2, R2. You have to do the smallest level of aiming, but it's almost like a guided aiming. So again, it's yeah. just trying to be, we're, we're doing something cool, but we don't want to completely remove control from you. And that does lead us to something that this game does have issues with, in which essentially the game does take control from you and that the only thing you can do is walk at a leisurely pace as it decides to have characters I hate uh, that. giving you dialogue. I won't even say that their exposition spills because mm. I mean, they are exposition. It just feels like they make the game slow down so that you don't hear so that you're not hearing exposition during something you're not supposed to. Like yeah. They don't want you to be hearing Lafayette talking about something while there's a gunfight going on because you move too quickly. And I understand that there's technical reasons that come behind that. You probably have a single recording of Lafayette doing that. And it's of the recording sounds like he's walking down the street. But if you let the player move at their own pace and suddenly they're in a gunfight, but Lafayette still sounds like he's just talking to you like you're walking down the street it has its own immersion breaking qualities while the nature of being slowed for no real reason other than to give you this exposition also has problems <laughs> of immersion breaking. Yeah. I guess the thing is like, there are ways to handle it that are more graceful than that. Like I could sprint, but I couldn't get into the door I needed to go through, you know, or even not to say that this game isn't interesting, but if your dialogue is interesting, I think most players will stop and listen who care. You know, like sure. when I'm driving around in Grand Theft Auto before a mission and I get to the mission checkpoint, but the dialogue hasn't finished, I will sit just outside the circle that triggers the mission so I can hear it play out. But I just I hate when games take control from me and make me go slower. It inherently makes me want to try and go faster the entire time. So then I spend more time pressing X, hoping I go faster than actually paying attention to what's going on. Yeah, no, I get what you mean. It's kind of like the... Uh if you tell a kid not to do something, they're, they're going to try harder to do it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it's unfortunate, honestly. I, you know, I understand where they were coming from. And I think the, the weirdest thing about this game is that it took a long time for them to make. Uh, and a lot of that came from the fact that they were approaching the game 
in the fact that it was going to build to something larger. And that's why the game ends with a cliffhanger. That's why there's a lot, a lot of world and lore building in this game that is intended to get you entrenched in the world. And I think it succeeds at that. It does. It's just, it never gets to pay off because we don't get, we've never gotten another game as of yet. And it's very unlikely now. Um, So, I, I it, ultimately those parts don't bother me that much when you're replaying it it's more aggressive because it feels like the first time i'm caught up in the fact that i don't know what's going on so it's a little easier to disconnect and just kind of walk at the pace it makes me walk at but when you i mean and that's that differs per person anyway but as someone who's played the game like four or five times now i understand that even though I know exactly what's going on, I'm being forced to kind of go through this. And it's unfortunate. I still like the story. I still love the voice actors and the the performances are fantastic. I think they're really good. And I know that what they're trying to do is they they say, we have a story that we want to tell and we want to make sure that you hear it and that you get yeah. it. And that's what's going on. But it does feel, and going back to that line I mentioned earlier of feeling like you're playing a game that is trying its best to be singular focused on one thing. And in this case, it's all about story and the world and everything else be damned. Yeah, I can agree with that. Kind of going off of the, the rest of the things be damned, right? I, of course the story is a big part of this game and it looms heavy in the game. They, they painstakingly try and go through and I wouldn't even say try. They painstakingly go through the game in such a way that they force you to interact and connect with characters and form relationships with these characters so that you care about them as you're playing the game. And I like that. They do a good job with that. But where they fail at other parts is making you hate the game in certain moments. Again, first time around, not as aggressive as other times, but you know, it's always, I guess this game always does feel, as much as I love it, it always does have a tinge of that tale of two games thing where I'm in love with everything and I'm moving through it and I'm having a good time. And then suddenly you make me pick up a gun and rotate my analog stick six different times so I can see it from every angle oh. before you let me put it down and keep going. Because I get it. You made a beautiful fucking gun and you want me to look <laughs> at that gun for a second. I understand it. No, and yeah. if I was being, honestly, the very first time that you see one, when you kick open that crate and it's got the uh, the order insignia on the gun and you're looking at it, it makes sense. You're looking at the order insignia and you're trying to get like a – it gives a moment for them to show off their tech, but also a story reason for you to be looking at the gun as much as you have. Yeah, definitely. Every other time feels so fucking – Aggressive, yeah. Yeah, it really is aggressive. And don't get me wrong, the game is gorgeous, and I love it. And I like the control that that system adds when you're picking something up of your own accord. Like when you're going through and you see a piece of paper on a table and you go, I wonder what that is, and you pick it up. I like that you have the freedom to turn it over, angle it, look at it. It's cool. Mm -hmm. It's cool when you're giving me complete agency. But when you're making me, through the actions of the game that I have to do to move forward, pick something up and then stare at it for what feels like an eternity. I'm going to be fair. It's probably five seconds, but five seconds of doing something that you absolutely don't want to do feels like a long time. The five seconds is about four seconds too long. You know? (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's weird. And honestly, I I wish it was just like, if you want to show off your gun, take control out of my hands for a second. The first time, let me look around the gun, you know, show me that. But every other time, if you pick something up and you want me to see it real quick, have a one second animation where he picks the gun up and then kind of angles it and brings it back where you can quickly see all around it. So you can have people admire the work that these artists did, but it doesn't feel like it's halting your progression. Yeah. That was the thing is like every time that happened, I 
just hit B or circle a, a couple of times. So I'm like, right, I can't do that. I would just swing my, my right stick around in circles trying to get it. And eventually he would just, you'd hit the right angle and he would pull away, you know, and that was super annoying. So, you know, what's weird about those moments is I told you, I've played this game multiple times now. I still don't know if it's that you just have to move the gun a number of times or if you're supposed to land on a specific angle. I think it's a specific angle because you hit an angle and then he it pulls out and he's holding the gun at that angle and then he starts going. So I think it's just an angle thing. It might be, but I've also thought that because the, everything happens in real time and the animations are just going, that it may be that whenever it decides that you've looked at the gun for the five seconds they wanted you to, that wherever you have the gun, they just move on. That's fair. You know, it, it could be either. I don't know, but that's a problem. How do I not even know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the game doesn't explain that at all, which is part of the issue. Yeah. How am I supposed to know what I'm supposed to do? <laughs> You'll tell me. I need to be directed. Yeah. Is there anything else in terms of what it does? I mean, there's plenty, I think, that it does as a showcase for next gen. And I'm glad that it does. But outside of that, I think that we can probably kind of move on from that conversation. We can. I think the only thing I'll say is I do want to give it credit that it still is gorgeous. <laughs> oh, dude. When I was playing it, this goes to show my wife, of course, was she was pregnant whenever I was playing this game. <laughs> and I stayed up until two or three or whatever in the morning playing it the first day after a really hard day of work. Um, and it's funny because I know she knew a little bit about it and I've played it plenty of times since, but she doesn't always watch me play games. So she happened to be in the back watching me play this and she goes, holy shit, that looks really good. And mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> and I was like, this is a five-year-old game. And she kind of looked because it, it was that moment of like, wow. Like she, she sees the games that I play. She knows how far games have come. And it is interesting to see that game be five years old. And I swear to you, if it released today, I'd believe it. I, me too. And I know it's partially because it's a hyper linear game. But one of the most absolutely ridiculously gorgeous looking parts of the game is two, actually. Um, I've already talked about one of them. I think the first time of that game just really gave me a holy crap. I can't believe it. When you're on the blimp or whatever you want to call them. I think they just call them airships. Uh, I can't remember exactly. But when you're on them, that first moment that you kind of see that like you you start rappling down and you're like, oh, I'm doing this. Even though that was another moment. My wife was like, oh, you're you're doing that. That's not like a cutscene." I said, yeah, I'm doing this. It everything about it looks so larger than life it brings the scale up so much and you see all the stuff going around it makes it feel like you're just in this world and then as you're grappling down and you see his feet hit the the side of the air blip and you see it leave an indention where his foot's at and then he mm-hmm. pushes off it feels back out and he hits the next there's so much attention to detail in that particular section that every time i see it I, I probably until the end of time, I will probably think that's that's the epitome of what a game can look like. I, I don't even know why. It's just a beautiful section to me. But one of the other things that every time I play this game, I have to stop and look at because I just I don't know that I've ever seen a better looking asset in the game. Okay, it's fu- I, it makes no sense. I thought when I was replaying it this time, I'm like, surely I've played The Last of Us too. I, I, there's something. <laughs> When you're in the uh, section where you're going into Lord Hastings Manor and you're going through the garden while it's raining, yeah, the lights, the lantern orbs, if you stop and look at one, there are beads of water just running down it, and it looks really? real. I don't even know how to describe it other than that. It just looks 
real. And I caught it the first time I played the game and was just like, what the hell am I looking at? (laughs) And every time I've played the game since, I stop and look at it to see if it's aged poorly. And I'm always like, this looks like, this looks, to me, like playing, I was like, this looks like The Last of Us 2 (laughs) from just a sheer detail level. Yeah, no, definitely. But yeah, the the game is clearly bonkers from a technical level. And I think that you see so many things that we still see today, like uh, fluid cloth motion and stuff like that. Whenever all, all the cloth uh, reacts really well and it doesn't clip very often, if really at all almost. Um, and that's something that, again, when you think about last gen, you're constantly thinking about the scarf clipping into the shoulder or the backpack clipping into the butt. You know, it's just, it's, you be, you get used to it. And when you see a game that has everything kind of just function and react in a way that feels realistic, it's really great. Like, you know, when you're walking through the chain, uh, the train yard and you've taken off your, um, you know, your order garb and you're just wearing the, you know, white button up shirt. Yes. It looks so good. <laughs> it does look really good there. I do totally agree with that. Yeah. But it's a fantastic looking game. And while plenty of games have gone on to look great alongside it, it really is a testament to their engine. And, I guess the last thing I'll say about it is I'm so sad that we've yet to see another game utilize this engine in, in this way. It's their engine, right? Yeah, it was a 100% crafted for this game. Yeah, but I'm saying Ready at Dawn owns it, not Sony. Yes, yes. Uh, as far as I'm aware, yes. Probably not seeing much because they're just doing what, Oculus games now? Yeah, and don't get wrong. Their Oculus games are, are lookers for VR, but they're not pushing it to this level. Not yet. No. So it is what it is. Uh, We will definitely see if anything else ever comes. I have a theory, uh, as I've mentioned on the Triangle Squared proper, that the the weird thing about this game is that it sold enough to warrant a sequel. Yeah. But but the reception was just so rocky that I think Sony had to play this game of cat and mouse of, do we let this game get a sequel, spend the money, and potentially take the risk of putting the money out there but maybe it becomes the uncharted 2 of this franchise Mm -hmm. or do we just cut our losses here my only thing is that sony invested so much money into this game and such a small team made it so even though it's so much money the budget was ultimately still small and making another one would be small because ready at dawn is not that big of a studio Uh, you know this game was made by a team of about like 80 or 90 people if i remember correctly uh and that's so much less than your average triple a game (laughs) definitely Rockstar is like 500 people and and thousands of people end up working on the game. Yeah. My thing here is that Ready at Dawn spent a lot of time crafting a game that had a clear path forward. They know exactly where the story goes from here. They've talked about it on numerous occasions. They haven't said what it is clearly, but the game knows what it's doing. And, you, and by the time that the credits roll, it's clear that they know what they want to do with the next game. I think it would be a disservice not to try one more. And the only reason I really look at it is like, we got a knack too. knack didn't sell that well, but it sold it well enough to warrant a sequel and it reviewed. Okay. And a lot of people made it as a butt of a joke, you know, but it actually got a sequel. And interestingly enough, the sequel is fantastic. <laughs> it's, it's actually very good, but I think that, Uncharted 1 is an impressive game. It is. But it's impressive to me in the same way that this is. I think that there's so much that Uncharted 1 does poorly that to have left the Uncharted series at only Uncharted 1 would have been a huge disservice. Oh, of course. Absolutely. So I feel the same way about this game. You know, they were clearly setting up for more. This was their first swing, and first attempts always have rough patches, things you have to learn. And when you do that, I think that clearly you can come back to Ready at Dawn and say, 
You've learned everything you need to learn by getting one out there. Let's make the game that people clearly want from what you were wanting to do versus what the players want. Let's put that together and let's make this game. My thing is with how much money they put into not only letting them create the engine, the game was in development for about six or seven years. It started development shortly after Uncharted 2 released. Really? Um, yeah. So a lot of the time was spent creating that custom engine and create, and then a lot of time was, of course, spent building this world and this lore. So in my mind, I feel like there's almost more of a reason not to just let it sit around. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I have this theory that They've given it some time to let people get away from it and let it potentially get some cult following like you have with me and let people buy it at that 5 to $10 mark and then get to where they might be okay for the idea of a sequel. Then what you do is you bring in Ready at Dawn. You tell them, hey, we're going to start working on this game. We're going to make sure that we do everything that the first one had, you know, people had issues with. We're going to make the game longer. We're going to make it a, you know, 12 to 15 hour story, whatever. We're going to give it multiplayer, maybe. We're going to make sure that we don't grandize, uh, you know, having to look at guns. We're going to not force people to walk in a small path because now we have the SST. There's all these things we can do anyway. Who knows? But you let them do all that stuff. And I think that there's a high chance that this could have happened prior to the buyout of Facebook because that only happened recently. And if if you look at Ready at Dawn, they have been making a AAA game. And they haven't said what it is for about two or so years maybe three. And I have a feeling that it could be this and that we're not going to see it until it's ready. And even it's much like I view the situation with when uh, Microsoft bought Obsidian, the Obsidian still had to release the outer worlds. It still released under the publisher of two K's branch of private division. And even if Facebook bought this, there's two things I see moving forward. I, I could see that Sony already had the deal in place and the deal is just being honored and they'll still release the game and then everything moving forward will be Facebook. Or I could see Facebook seeing the monetary reason to let Sony come in and say, we're going to contract Ready at Dawn. Because I think Facebook has less of a reason to view them as an exclusive developer. Well, yeah, I guess. I just don't know why Facebook would be like, yes, stop making VR games for our VR system. Yeah. Well, Ready at Dawn has multiple teams, uh, so you I can still continue that. to go. Yeah, they, they broke into a multiple-team studio. Again, small teams, but whenever they started that game that they did with GameStop, I can't remember what it's called now. Neither can I. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, though, right? Where you have to like roll around and knock people off stuff? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so anyway, that's my theory there. But And actually, that ends up working out because my next uh, note here was all about world building, laying a clear path forward to a sequel. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, how did, I mean, you said you agreed with me. Like, where did you land on the world building and the characters? And like, what did they make you feel in context of this world? Um, I liked the characters a lot. I didn't necessarily feel much for the world because while the game is gorgeous, the world was London, but all you really saw was the inside of basements, you know, and buildings. There's obviously more to it than that, but it was a lot of like, there was never a moment where I was outside fighting in the streets of London outside of like some alleyways and some back uh-huh. stuff. So to me, like while they built lore, they didn't necessarily build a world for me, if that makes any sense. I get what you mean. And I will say just to clarify on my part for any listener, uh, what I, when I say world building in this situation, I do mean world in terms of the lore and the, the existence of not a world that you're visually seeing so much as the, the existence of a world that just is in the background that supports these characters and these okay. stories. Then, yeah, I would say that they did do a good job of that 
because yeah. I was interested in what was going on. So I would say that that itself is good. They held my interest with that. And I definitely finished that game. And I was like, oh, I, now that I finished, I kind of wish I could see what happened next. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It set everything up really well to the point where I'm like, Galahad has so much stuff to deal with. <laughs> yeah. And no one to help him right now, except for yeah. Queen, I guess. Well, and yeah, and see, I love the way that this this kind of goes because, like you said, uh, like you know, when you look at the end of Uncharted One, it's not clear to me that there was a plan for a second one. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it, it makes sense that a second one could exist, but it's a very self wrapped up story. Yeah, and I think the same is true of the Order. It's a wrapped up story in and of itself, but it's clear that there's something more to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a cliffhanger in a way that Uncharted is not. Right. It's one of those where, like, I could, this is a really good first arc, but it's a full first arc. Like, there's a beginning yeah. and end to the story, which is a yeah. good side, which is a good story in an arc. You know, it's like they say in, in books, a chapter should have a beginning, middle, and end the same way a book does. You know, it's, mm-hmm. this, this does that in that sense. Everything needs to kind of exist within that realm of, you have a story that you're telling within these chapters and every chapter is like, it's like its own mini book that's building up to this big book. And that's true of most media. I mean, you know, of course, visual media has a lot that goes off to help it. Uh, You know, you have, you have to do all the word building to support the world in a book. But of course the game has the luxury of having score to set moods that you would have to otherwise explain. You have visuals that set the mood, color palettes that set the mood. You have, of course, seeing the characters and seeing their lip furl instead of having to write in his lip furled. (laughs) But yeah, you know, you're definitely right. There's something about this game where it's clear that so much work went into this on each particular level that this is just a smaller piece of a bigger story while still feeling complete in itself. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was satisfied with the ending of this one and I didn't necessarily need more to be satisfied, but I wanted it, which is me a sign of a good ending. Yeah, I agree. Um, So one thing we've not talked about yet. Yes. That I, I personally love, but I, understand to at least a small degree why people are not just in love with it. How did you feel about the letterboxing? Uh, I didn't notice it. I would say that in gameplay, I didn't notice it, mm-hmm. but clearly in the look and feel of the game and the cinematics, I noticed it, which is exactly what I think it was intended to do. And I think, I think it personally succeeded at 90% of the time, at least. Yeah. It was something that like, now that you mentioned it, I'm like, yeah, okay. But when I was watching, I was or when I was playing, it was just the way I was. It was just how I'm used to looking at stuff, you know. Yeah, so sure. I just didn't. Well, it felt right for what it was trying to do, right? It was yeah. trying to be cinematic, and exactly, it, exactly what it did, and it sold that well. I think the one thing I'll say about the letterboxing, as much as I do love it, is: Have you played Final Fantasy VII Remake yet? Uh, I've played through Chapter Nine. Okay, so you at least probably know what I'm talking about. You might not. You may not know this is in the game. I think the one challenge that the letterboxing occasionally can do, and it's going to be a slightly different per person, but that's why my solution here, I think, works, is the the letterboxing that's there is great during the cutscenes, and it's great during gameplay most of the time. But one of the things that would have been really nice for a game like this is every now and then, 
you do feel just a little too close to the camera. And I think certain players are going to feel that more than others. So what would have been great is either a field of view slider that lets you determine how much you see within this letterboxing, or even just the idea of three different camera stages, which is what Final Fantasy VII Remake does. Mm -hmm. It's where you have right up on cloud, you kind of have the middle range of cloud and then a little further back it's kind of like a racing game how you can get right up on the car just a little bit more back and it's all about how much of the world around you you want to see yeah i think this would have definitely benefited from something like that the reason that i'm pretty sure it's not is probably a reason that you may have noticed but you may not have did you ever go in front of a mirror in the game and notice that your reflection's not there i did not know see i don't think most players would but of course when you look when the game looks as good it occasionally will invite someone like me to go can I go in front of the mirror and look? Because the reflection in the mirror looks perfect of everything in your surroundings, but it's because it's a pre-baked reflection. So okay. it it knows everything that's around it, so they go ahead and make a texture of a reflection that they can put into it. <laughs> and th- that reflection still moves within it, but it's only about the images that were already there. And I think that what that kind of speaks to is that a lot of this game was hyper-optimized so that it could look as good as it does. <laughs> And because of that, I have a feeling that the letterbox also allowed them to push the game more because they didn't have to render a full 1920 by 1080. And that means that at any given time, the set field of view that they gave meant that you always had, they always had exact control of how much of the world was visible. And that means they could push performance to its absolute limit because they always had precise control. Yeah, definitely. I think anything that helps make the graphics better in a game like this is good so if you need to cut down a little bit of the screen to make it look excellent do it you know i hope that i personally agree this is just a fun thing for anybody that wants to look into it if you plug your playstation 4 into one of these ultra wide monitors you can actually play the game without letterboxing oh no shit (laughs) you can stretch to fill the screen of the uh of the ultra wide monitor to where all you see is the letterboxed you know image without the black letterboxing actually Hmm. Yeah. So I, I think that that's one thing that could be an improvement on the game. Definitely when you're not worried about being the next gen showcase in the same way, though, it would be interesting if they end up having the order 1887 come back as a showcase for PS five, it would actually be kind of poetic and definitely if it succeeds. <laughs> yeah, it definitely be cool. I would be happy to see that. I think they deserve a chance to make another one. Like that's kind of my big thing is I don't see why, I don't see anything about this movie that's like, okay, I can understand why they got kicked to the curb. Especially with, like you said, like there's a sequel to Knack. <laughs> yeah. And I think people only talk about Knack because it's a meme, because it's so not great, you know, right? That has to be the only reason. And I mean, of course, Sony has more reason with Knack because he's a rated E character and they <laughs> don't have enough of those. Need more mascots. Yeah, you need more mascots. But, you know, the thing is, is that Nathan Drake has proven that, you know, you can have mascots that are not platforming. I I think Kratos at this point, definitely. Kratos was already a mascot for PlayStation, but I think his, you know, the 2018 God of War re-cemented that. That's the one that proves that you don't need to be necessarily, I want to say PC, but I don't think that's what I mean. You know what I mean? You don't need to be a rated E look like a uh, Chuck E. Cheese character be a mascot. <laughs> you can you yeah. be the god of war, the man who literally killed all the humans in the world because he was mad at his dad. So, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and like, you know, another great example is I think there's a strong argument that Aloy has become some form of a mascot for PlayStation this yeah. generation. The thing is, like, people talk about mascots like it's not hard to make one. Make a good character. That is a mascot. <laughs> exactly. But people are like, oh, they need to bring Sackboy up. Like, I don't give a damn about Sackboy. He's cute. So I love Sackboy. He's clearly easy fodder for a, a mascot, clearly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you're right. It's like all you really need is an interesting character and at, and at least some level of a of a design that makes them stand out. Right. Those are your two things. You know, Kratos is pale and has the paint, and he's bald. You see him and you know who he is. Mm-hmm. Aloy has her, you know, trademark hair and her little earpiece. You know, like you see her and you know who she is. Same with Drake. You you have these qualities that you've made a character who's easy to define and therefore easy to recognize, and therefore a mascot. Yeah. Are you going to tell me that 007 is not a mascot, or, you know, James Bond? Yeah, exactly. James Bond is James Bond is the biggest mascot of all time. I think Mario may have that one. but Does he, though? That That is actually a very compelling argument, because I would argue that, well, Mario is a bigger uh, mascot in our like, age group or generation, I guess. In, in 007 and James Bond have been around for so long. Yeah. My my grandparents knew James Bond. You know, that kind of thing. It's true. Also, Mario's never been voiced or acted by Sean Connery. So True. That would be yeah. a great game. Could you imagine that Mario game? Bowser. Bowser, where's Peach? <laughs> so, uh, I actually think that, that leads me to something I really want to talk about, which is I, I mentioned a little earlier in the episode. Dude, the I don't even know if it was mocapped. I have no clue. It looks like it was mocapped, mm-hmm. and the voice delivery of everything. It was the first next gen game that I was blown away by how convincing every performance was. Not only the voice, but the animation behind everything going on. It was just, and for the weight of the story that the game is telling, you need solid performances. They can't be anything but. In this game, I feel like never slips. It never slips in terms of what. I'm sorry. It never slips in quality. Like there's never yeah. a character or a, or a performance that you see that removes you from the experience because it just doesn't work. No, like even uh, even the smallest performance, right? Like one of the good examples, and it's a small performance but with big impact, is when you and Mallory are on the airship and you run across the militia guy or the rebellion guy who is on the bridge with the explosive, and Mallory and Grayson are talking to him. And he's a character that you see once and he has, you know, ultimately he's going to pass. But his performance as this character who's kind of stuck between two people and feeling like he's trapped, but also has these people who are trying to lure him in to tell them like, hey, we want to know more. You're hinting at something. Tell us more. And you just see that kind of frustration and stress, not only in his character as it's Mm -hmm. modeled, but you hear that in the vocal performance. And I love that because I feel like most of the time, Games keep a small cast of characters because it's easier to have great performances from four or five characters than it is to also have random dialogue from a character that we don't even know their name, but it feels just as real and grounded as every other character. Yeah, I could see that. I think the only character I didn't necessarily think was very good in this game was, uh, I think, the Queen's daughter, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I didn't think she was very good. I thought her model looked weird. But, you know, that could just be me. 
I, I don't know. I, I didn't, I've never had really any problems with it, but I mean, well, it's, it's, I'm only bringing it up because you asked, it wasn't something where, I, no, yeah, yeah, no, certainly. I mean, if something, if something brushed you, which of course, you know, you are still viewing this. I always have a layer of nostalgia towards this game. Now there's no way not to. Right. So I am always in some form viewing this game as 2015 Brett to some degree. It's, I, I can never be completely separated from it. So while we were playing it, I felt like everything held up strongly and still looked fantastic. Um, I didn't really think about... I can't think of her name right now. Neither can I. Ronnie, maybe? No, something along those lines. Yeah, I, I actually think you're fairly close. <laughs> yeah, Raimi, maybe. Raimi Malik. <laughs> <laughs> See, I'm trying to remember who the the queen herself was it like locks me or something yes i think that was right Lock- queen locks me yeah and oh man but yeah i mean uh i could and i honestly i could feel like even if you kind of looked at her i do feel like of course she's given them enough convincing for what you need she plays a character who's untrusting of our character and i think it works you know i mean there was never a single line of dialogue that just removed me from the experience no and i think that's really important in these types of games absolutely Everything, so I guess I'll bring up my my thing with this game, right? Everything was engaging, and I think you, you kind of could tell I had this problem, where everything while I was playing was engaging, but when I wasn't playing it, nothing drove me to go back. Yeah, yeah. And you know we were I know we talked about that just a hair at the beginning of that you said you had that because I was talking about my experience with Red Dead but yeah. I did notice that you know I had to kind of as I was checking in on where you were it, it was a very interesting character arc from my side I'll give you that real quick and then <laughs> I'll give the listeners that real quick and then uh, you can kind of give yours but you know first day that he started it he messaged me kind of excited like Hey, I, I'm really like, surprised at how good the order is so far. Mm-hmm. But you were maybe like three chapters in, maybe yeah. two chapters in. Yep. You weren't very far. Nope. And um, I'm assuming you had gotten a, a kind of a taste for everything. You kind of got a taste for how the story sets up, what the gunplay was like, kind of the internal drama of what's going on. You were kind of roped in. Yeah. And yeah, then I check again and I'm kind of like, well, where are you? And you're like, well, I haven't played in a few days. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. There was just something about it where part of it was that I was doing this show with you, so I wanted to be more of like, I'm going to sit down and play it. But then there was this other thing where I had the time to get a chapter or two in, and I just looked at it. I was like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it was because, like I said, I was engaged the whole time I was playing it, but it didn't get its hooks in me enough to to drive me to play it. Like if I did this, I don't even think I would have gotten the platinum if I hadn't been having to finish it, you know, or at least not, yeah. not, not as quickly as I did. I mean, I could see that. Now, one thing I was curious about yeah. in this, and I don't think it's the answer, but it's just a curiosity for me because I don't think that you have this problem, but I typically do. One of the big reasons I don't look at trophies or follow trophy guides the first time I'm playing a game. Yeah is I feel like that inherently removes me from the experience. Mm -hmm. And I want to feel as involved in the game as I can at any given time. And the, the best way to pull me into wanting to come back is to make sure that my enjoyment is at its max at all times when playing the story. And story is a big reason for me to want to come back. But for me personally, if I'm breaking that or even breaking fun gameplay parts in between story to try and look and make sure I'm getting a trophy or finding a collectible, 
Mm-hmm. For me personally, it breaks that. Now, I know that you were going through this with, hey, not only is this a chance for me to play a game that I've never played, it's also something that we're going to do an episode about. And I like the idea of having an episode of someone who's played it multiple times and someone who's only played it once now. I agree. Um, so when going through that, I know that you kind of had that. Like I even mentioned it to you. It's like, hey, you also get a fairly easy platinum out of it <laughs> if you want to do it in a single playthrough. Yeah. I didn't. You know, I, I think I told you I didn't have the platinum for this game until my third playthrough. Right. So I guess on that, because I find that interesting where so I don't look at video guides. Yeah, I, I assumed you follow a, just a written guide. Yeah. So like the way I'll do it is like, OK, chapter one, I need this collectible, this collectible. And a lot of them are written like, oh, once you get past the falling bridge and you have to light the thermite, there's something in this room. So I can go from the last collectible that I just got to that one without being interrupted. And I think the thing with collectibles, especially in games like this, is you're not picking up a collectible when there's any action on the screen. So you 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 look at the guide, you know where the next place you need to go is, and then you get there. That's why I prefer text guides. Because I did Tacoma. I did that Platinum entirely with a video guide, and I have no idea what that game's about. Because <laughs> <laughs> you were too focused on yeah, making I sure did. that you were... It was. I did that that platinum in forty six minutes, and I've never touched it again because that was how long the guide was, you know. But yeah. this and this kind of stuff, I do the text guides because it's one of those like, okay, you have these spaces of stuff where you get collectibles, and th- then you get onto the next gameplay. So it doesn't pull me out because there's enough time between actual gameplay and me just glancing at my phone. You know, I have my phone. I have like a little mini fridge next to where I sit. So it's on the mini fridge and it's just the guides there. So I just glance down. Okay. I need to be here. Go. Sure. So I have a question just cause we're kind of talking about that side of the game right now. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, and I, the reason I ask it is because not only do I think it, it's a cool part that could have worked in the game's favor, but I wonder if you feel like if it was this in depth, if it would have changed uh, okay. your enjoyment of it or if it would have, ultimately been the same as reading looking for a marker and then going about it i think one of the things about this game is none of the collectibles are out of the way uh you really don't have to look very hard you don't have to solve any puzzles to get them no i think that one of the interesting things here is that uncharted one and uncharted two definitely uncharted two with their collectible system you normally had to do a little bit more work to to get them and ultimately, I feel like this game would have benefited from gameplay, even gameplay time, if what you did was gave people collectibles that they had to actually overcome some kind of a puzzle or platforming challenge or something to get. Instead, the collectibles are just kind of, you're already in this area. If you don't happen to look in this nook, you're just going to miss it. Um, you know I what I mean? Know. Like, yeah. if, you had to, if you had to actually look at a situation and see a building, you're, and it's interesting because you're, you're lengthening the game by utilizing what you already have by nothing more than just being like, Hey, they can already climb up this stuff. Why don't we just make it to where they actually have to go around and climb through this stuff to get up to that spot and actually go out of their way to look for a collectible. I guess. I don't know. I prefer the way this game did it because it was story too. You know, if you read that stuff, you got a lot of backstory. Yeah, certainly. Um, if you picked up Sackboy, boy, you got to see that, Little Big Planet was alive and well <laughs> in the hearts of all Londoners in 1886. Exactly. Um, I guess the best example for me is like the last. I guess we're, we'll. I have to move on to a different thing quick. But the the Last of Us did collectibles almost perfectly, 
because those were the same as this one where it was lore. So I definitely agree that they should be lore. Yeah, because like in The Last of Us, you know, I did that whole game with a guide and I was really glad that I did. I think I mentioned that in the show that we did together where the best part of that game is the collectibles for me in the game. Mm-hmm. And in this one, it's almost the same, except the story to me is more engaging in this game. Mm-hmm. So I personally, I don't like that idea. I think adding any obstacle to that lore isn't good, you know? I think Uncharted can get away with it because it's just treasure. And treasure is supposed to be hard to find. It's supposed to be hard to find, but it, it you wouldn't miss any story by not collecting the treasure. You know? No, fa- fair. Yeah, I understand that. I don't collect the rusted Inca spoon. I'm not going to miss a story beat of, of Uncharted, but, you know... If you, well, and it's like you said, it, you know, the the lore here not only builds into the story overall sometimes, like the actual story of what you're doing, yeah. but it also does what we were talking about earlier, and it builds the lore of this world out to where the world feels more believable, and it gives you some other snippet of something to be interested in, whereas you're right. Ultimately, it doesn't matter about the spoon because it doesn't play into the lore. No. Maybe it makes you realize that it's something that the culture that you, of the world that you're walking around in had, but it doesn't actually add anything to the world. It doesn't world build like the lore in this does. It doesn't world build. Or the collectibles in this do. Really. And what I like about this one and something that's always bothered me about Uncharted's is Uncharted's kind of break the world. Uh, and I know that's going to seem weird, but the fact that Nathan Drake always seems to come off as poor but I play through. I've played through four Uncharted games and picked up over four hundred pieces of treasure. You know, and but he always loses it beforehand. You before he ends it, you know. Yeah, apparently. But the games actually talk about that. Well, <laughs> he, like he gives up El Dorado. He he you know he he he's always forsakes the treasure yeah, for the greater good of humanity. I, I just mean the tiny treasures of collectibles that I go around and collect. Yeah. You know, it it never made sense to me that he didn't have money from those. Cause it's not like, no, no. it's not like he, El Dorado is dropping out. The city of uh, gold is collapsing and then he just empties his pockets of Inca spoons. <laughs> <laughs> I think the game wants you to feel that way. Like, Oh, I lost my backpack. <laughs> All my Inca spoons were in my backpack. <laughs> my Inca spoons. Damn it. My Inca spoons and uh, Jack. The, the Jack and Daxter references are gone. <laughs> My precursor orb. Damn it. <laughs> the, um. the point that I'm making without that to be too long winded about uncharted is that these all play into the story and there's no, there's more, almost more of a drive to get these with me. I have a drive to get them regardless because I wanted the platinum, but if you weren't going for that, I would still say you should probably get at least the newspapers. And cause then you learn more about Jack the Ripper and just the state of London in 1886 of this universe. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you, this is my preferred form of a collectible. I, I think that collectibles, a lot of the times in games are things that I have no drive to get because they don't do anything. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, like, you know, a good example is like, you see Spider-Man, there's all these collectibles about things that Peter has left around New York for a while. Incredible. It, it's eh? I mean, you know, like most of the time it's there. There's the occasional nugget where there's like a recording or something that gives you a peek into Peter's past. That's cool. Then you get one that's like, oh, all you did was find his backpack that he slung a web against <laughs> beside a building. And all that did was tell you that he was here like eight years ago. Yeah. 
<laughs> like, graphing. One of them is much more interesting than the other. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, so I, I'm with you. This is definitely where I am, but I still think that there's a way that you could go about making it to where they're not directly in your path so that there's more of a feel of like you're walking around to get them. But like you said, you naturally are going to miss out on some of the cool world building that not only does the developer go through crea- uh, creating, but you probably want as many people to experience that as possible. Again, in their mind, I'm sure that they thought people were going to be into that. And sadly, it wasn't enough for people. <laughs> uh, but, you know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think there's a good argument there. I, I mean, that really, I, I was more curious of if that's there because it does solve the problem of gameplay by giving you not only another facet of gameplay by letting you uh, do more puzzle solving, which there is some puzzle solving in the game. It's never for the effort of anything other than progression. Yeah, I guess for me, I don't think that would assuage anybody complaining about the gameplay. They're going to have the same complaint I had about Seattle and The Last of Us where it's like, why did I do something interesting to just go scavenger hunting for three hours in this, in this big city, you know? Well, and definitely like in the last of us's case, it does not the worst in that game, thankfully, but you know, in games that are very story driven, doing a hub open area like that tends to really mess with pacing. Yeah. They shouldn't have done that. Um, but it's another game. Another game. It is another game. Um, let's do, let's do this one. <laughs> Should we talk about the actual story? I think we should, but before we get there, I think I want to let that kind of be our ending thing. Okay. Um, you know, I, I wish I would have brought this up, but I'm going to go back to QTEs real quickly. Okay. Because there's one in particular that I think even the people who didn't like the QTEs probably probably respected. Mm-hmm. Would, do you have a guess of what it is? Maybe the lichen fights? Not the lichen fights. Uh, so, And that's something we're going to talk about before we get to the story as well. So the QTE that's specifically in mind, right, is this is like one of the times, and there's a couple, but one of the times is the QTE, like little interactive cutscenes, make a lot of sense to me and also add a huge impact to the moment at hand is the ending, where you have to not only like cock the hammer back and then the game just comes to like, I, I call it like a faint heartbeat. The game is just standing there, frozen yeah. in time almost, but just with enough movement for you to see that this is a character who's not frozen. They're really just sitting there lingering on this moment. And the game is just content with itself, and you're content with yourself until you finally decide to pull the trigger and kill Lucan. Mm-hmm. I fucking love that. To me, that that being like the real ending of the game before the little cutscene that you know sets up, 1887 essentially i fucking love that shit every time i play this game that part just gets me i think it's the perfect use of qte i agree that was actually a really good moment it reminds me of the um end of god of war 3 and i really like both of those moments for yes yes i being the opposite but also the same if you know what i mean (laughs) yeah no exactly exactly and you know there's a couple of other games that have done this kind of stuff but i just to me there's nothing like, you know, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in the QT and like the game could have just done that. The game could have had Grayson in a video format, pull the trigger back and shoot him all by himself. Mm-hmm. And it could have still lingered for a moment and left us wondering when it was going to pull. But instead, the game comes to a halt and it's like we could sit here all day. But if you want to beat this game, Got you're going to have to pull the trigger. Yeah. And I think that they do just enough work by that point. And I think the game does a good job of setting up Lucan in a way to where you you kind of don't want to kill him, but you know it's the right thing to do. See, 
Or I won't say necessarily the right thing, but it's, it feels like it's the thing that Grayson would do in that moment, I guess. He definitely would. Yeah. My only issue with this game is they seem very aggressive about not like shoot first, ask questions later in this game, in this whole thing. And I did mention that earlier with the the QTE of the guards of where like they're supposed to be being low key. No one even know, no one from the order even knows they're on the ship yet. They're killing guards. Yeah, I didn't really understand <laughs> that. You think you'd want to lessen death? Isn't that your whole thing here? Yeah, I think that there's no reason that couldn't have been me choke holding and knocking them out. Yeah. But instead, I'm like stabbing them in the throat. Because it, it kind of plays weird. It kind of play, comes off weird in the game, too, where Galahad's just like, no, I'm right. We need to kill them. I'm like, dude, like, nobody knows why you're here, really, except you. You know, I could. No, it's the other guy. I'm sorry. It's not Galahad. <laughs> But. Yeah, it's not Galahad, it's Mallory. Yes. And you know what's interesting, though, too, is that like the game actually goes about trying to explain that. And I appreciate that they at least tried to deal with that cognitive dissonance and say, like, wait a minute, why would they be doing this? And if, if you remember, there's a part where they kind of bring that up and they're like, but we don't want to risk them waking up and alerting the other guards before we make it to where we're going. See, I would argue that that is a good reason. Well, okay, I should rephrase myself. It's not necessarily the best reason to murder someone. <laughs> yes but it's a good enough reason in, in the world i guess that that reason works it just it comes off as very like the opposite of what they're going for where you're not making me feel compassionate to these guys mm-hmm. and i guess it's a little weird because like you're killing these people who you don't know if they're part of anything they're literally just guards and yet when you have somebody on this bridge with an explosive in their hand and talking about all this stuff that's going on, you're slowly approaching him and seeming like you're genuinely, or at least Mallory is in this case for sure. But even Mallory kind of, you know, signals to Galahad, like, wait, don't do anything. And of course, it, the game foreshadows that Mallory was working with, you know, to try and understand some, what's going on on this other side. And we're given that little nugget. But It's just a weird disconnect where sometimes the game makes you want to feel like the characters are all about the safety of the humans as a whole. And yet we're killing a lot of humans in pursuit of that. Right. And I thought the, I could be misremembering when this happened, but was that when they couldn't tell who rebels were? Well, what do you mean? Because there was that one point where you had to identify rebels. Was that then? Via their patch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was inside of the airship after right. you've done the QTE section. See, okay, so that's part of it. They know this, right? Before that, because they have that. Do they have that information before? I'm so, I just want to make sure my point is correct before I say it. You know, in thinking back to the moment, I'm fairly positive that they kind of reference back. Like it, it's almost a, a given to you in dialogue form, as it's something that they just kind of thought of and realized was a way for them to be able to notice who's who in the situation. Okay, because that's one of those things to me where I thought they had that knowledge going in, so it almost makes it worse because it's like you were in stealth, just see if they have a patch. But if they didn't know, then they didn't know, and I can't really complain about it. Yeah. Well, and I think you also have the setup, right? And I'll, again, I'll give the game a little bit of credit. I still see where you're coming from. And I think that there is probably a more, there's probably a better way to handle it. But uh, essentially, again, with the reasons given, they're not supposed to be there. They're not supposed to be on that airship. Mm-hmm. They've not been given clearance by the actual order. They're kind of doing this covertly. They can't risk being caught. And if they do get caught and they get caught by somebody who does happen to be part of the resistance, they risk them somebody blowing up the whole ship 
way too early or killing Hastings too early. So you run into this problem of while it still feels a little bit at odds with certain parts of the game, it does feel like it's the, the story presenting them in a situation where it's the only way that they can really move forward. Mm-hmm. Even if it's a thing that they don't necessarily want to do. Now it, it does still make the game come off in the sense of being a little too aggressive and a little too quick to kill, but it, it's like, regardless of how much you buy into it, the game at least is often trying to give you something, even the littlest thing to hold on to that can justify it to some degree. Yeah, definitely. It just gives me this, this vibe of like, I don't know, police violence where if, if this was a, a cop game and you were like, well, we don't know if this is the drug dealers friends. So we got to kill all these guys in this neighborhood. We'd kind of feel real <laughs> weird about it. Whereas in this game, you kind of suspend that because they're just fantasy. You know what I mean by that? So Certainly. It's totally fine to just shoot people. but And this is also a world in where werewolves exist, and you don't know if the, the rebels are helping the werewolves or what. So the stakes are definitely different than our world. For sure. Which I think is why in fantasy it's a little quicker to kind of suspend disbelief. Mm-hmm. Or at least change your moral grounding yeah no i'm definitely with you on that uh but going back to the the qt ending thing which is going to act as a transition into the next part as much as i love that moment and i really think it's fantastic it might be one of the best moments of the whole game it doesn't make up for the final boss fight (laughs) no and it doesn't make up for the fact that it's essentially a reuse of the same exact mechanics from about you know 50 percent previous in the game but i do like that that moment helps you in that moment forget about that for just long enough to live in that moment linger in that moment and not necessarily want to pull the trigger but know that you kind of have to Mm -hmm. and that's a good thing and i i think that if you gave me this game without that ending and without that level of control with the ending it, it rests very differently because of the fact that they ended up doing the exact same boss fight a second time which leads us into the overall use of lichens and specifically like half breeds, but even the original pure ones in the game play, not necessarily in the story, in the gameplay, because the two things that come from this is that both of the boss fights in the game are the exact same and they're essentially QTEs. Now, I'm going to say something that's probably a little crazy here, but I think it's worth being said. You've played Uncharted 4, yes? Correct, I have. If the boss fight that we were given at the end of the game had been the only time that that had been given. I think it's excusable. Is it the best boss fight in the world? No, but it's essentially uncharted Four's fight with Rafe. Yeah, I could see that. It's almost verbatim. The exact same thing. It's you and another person going toe to toe. Yeah. That's with QTEs and you have to dodge each other and then do attacks. No one chirped a word about Uncharted 4s because Uncharted 4 is a perfect game that can't do any wrong. (laughs) I joke, but I I think the real problem of that is that they did that same thing twice. And the first time, it's okay. Like, you know, you're kind of into it. You're like, okay, it is what it is. But then the second time, it becomes underwhelming. But I also think it's kind of looped in with the fact that the only times that you actually deal with werewolves or lichens or whatever you want to say within this uh, series it's always a little underwhelming like you have the scenes where you're in like a dark room that's got a bunch of stuff in your way and you gotta spin around and look at the ones that are running towards you so that you can shoot them and then go in them like those parts are cool i like those but they they reuse those and they feel very cut and pasted 
then you then you give me a boss fight, which should be a cool change of pace. But then you cut and paste that again. Yeah. So you run into this problem of feeling like one of the big selling points of the game, which was this idea of an order who fights werewolves and fights lichens, and you don't actually get to do a lot of that. Like clearly, the the story revolves around it, and it has a big impact on the story. So in a way, it is about that. But you, as the player, are not getting to experience that as often or in as grand of a manner as I think many were expecting. And I think that does come into the playing of marketing expectations versus what happened. And one of the only things I will say that really took me out of the game the first time I played it, even though I was still over the moon with it, was the fact that we didn't do enough with the lichens. Yeah, and I think the the fights with the lichens weren't hard or scary or tense or anything it was just like oh okay they're coming from the other side of the room i shoot them and then press x you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it kind of took all the tension out of that i almost wish you never fought a lichen except until the end uh did you play this game on hard no i played it on normal okay just curious the game is much more challenging at least on hard uh, but this this game has a little bit in the liking moment, which I think this would have helped, but it would also would have upped the challenge considerably. Mm-hmm. The lichens have a little bit of the Arkham syndrome where you have a bunch of people around you, and yet at any given time, only one or two are actually coming at you, and the rest are just standing around waiting for their turn to take a swing instead of them all kind of swinging at you. Yeah. And that's kind of what happens here is you end up getting one at a time running up on you. But, you know, it'd be a lot more interesting if you had three or four lichens that were constantly coming at you. And it became a game of using the the level design that they had given you of that that tight space that you're in and having to kind of juke off and separate them long enough for you to get shots in so that you can start whittling the numbers down. It ups the challenge. It definitely ups the stress of it. It kind of gives you a sense of what these knights have to go through and fighting these lichens and what it's like. And it's not only do you feel it like in a way that the story is already telling you, but now you feel it through gameplay yourself. Mm-hmm. And then of course it, it also adds a little bit of length to the game because you you're having to think more and work more and it does create more gameplay. So yeah. there's a lot of potential there, which I think is kind of the, the story of this game, right? Is the story of so much potential. Sometimes that is completely met and sometimes that is brushed up in a way that may not be perfect, but you see where there could be something great and that should come in a sequel. Yeah, it definitely should. This one it's one of those things where in this game, if, if, if the fights with lichens were how the knights were fighting them in real life, like the lichen should be extinct because <laughs> they, they just run at you and then hide on the other side of the room and then run at you and then hide on the side of the room. That was probably my biggest disappointments where I'm like, you guys just didn't, it's going to sound bad, but you guys just didn't really try. <laughs> well, and and again, I know that the world tries to approach this, right? With these are not real old lichens. These are people who are newly turned and aren't full. And then like, you know, when you have the moments where you see an, an elder, as they call them, I think, it those are the moments that you have these boss fights where it's someone who's more pure. Yeah. And they transform more fully and they're more of a threat and they're bigger and they, and it is more of an approach. And again, even to that level with what the boss fights are, you like, so the way that you go about killing them is, can you only kill them by doing essentially a Dukes up sword fight? Mm-hmm. Because <laughs> clearly that's not how it'd go. If you have all these crazy guns, all you have to do is just have one, which they're, they're shown as cunning. So of course they're probably going to get you in a situation where they can overpower you and make you lose your weapon. But yeah, I definitely get what you mean. 
there's a little bit of a disconnect of the threat that they pose within the story itself, but the threat that they pose in gameplay does not necessarily match. Right, exactly. It's just disappointing. It's an interesting game. I think the last thing that we'll probably do, and then we'll go into the story, is um, you, you talked about it, but I, we didn't talk much about it. Uh, I personally think that the gunplay in the game is super fun, and I think that the handful of very unique weapons is cool. There's, of course, less weapons overall than plenty of other games, but the uniqueness of the weapons that are there is more interesting than just having a lot of real guns. So... For me, you know, I think that one of the cool things here is that the the few weapons that are unique have like the specific twist of having an alternate fire. Uh, the thermite rifle is clearly super cool. Uh, but wh- where did you land on the the guns and weaponry themselves, and how you actually use them in gunplay? I thought the guns were cool. Um, I kind of focus. I kind of only use the uh, pistols, which may be a little weird, but I really thought those were the most fun to use. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I really like the like big ass revolver you get. Just one shot people. That was how I played it. It's just so fun. Just pop out of cover and just headshot, headshot, headshot. It was over. Oh yeah. Did you find yourself using the Blackwater aim a lot? No, I didn't know how to use it. I ended up looking at a trophy guide <laughs> and being like, "Oh, this is how you hit it." And I think I just missed a prompt. Yeah, the game definitely tells you. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think that's on the game. I think I just missed something. But I didn't realize it was a thing. And I'm looking at the trophies. I'm like, what the fuck is Black Sight? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty cool. You know, I mean, if you think about it, it's exactly what that set piece in the thing is. Yeah. Once I did figure it out, I was like, okay. But even once I figured it out, I didn't use it after I got the uh, trophy. Yeah, the trophy. Because I just, I didn't need it. Yeah. I, I like the idea of the... And that's part of why I like playing the game on hard because it is more challenging. And I like the idea of the Blackwater from a lore standpoint. Uh, I like it in the story alone. I just think it's a cool idea that it extends your health. And of course, when you get shot and whatnot, it kind of acts as a miracle elixir. Yeah, uh, I love that. But from a gameplay standpoint, I love that they actually went through the like, hey, let's make you have a gameplay reason. Because if you think about it, it's a lot like um, Red Dead Redemption's Deadeye system. Yeah, it is. But it but there's an actual reason as to why you're suddenly so damn good at shooting. <laughs> yeah. Cause like in, in red dead, it's just like, okay, so I, I hit a button, but what in world reason do I have for suddenly being a sharpshooter and why am I not a sharpshooter the rest of the time? No, exactly. And, and not to say that games always have to have that, but I appreciate that level of care. So when you go in and be like, well, here's the black site. And this is one other benefit that you have. It's like a short burst of adrenaline that makes you acutely aware of your surroundings and able to act quicker on it. I like that basic idea. One thing I thought, which maybe you won't feel nearly as much as me, but this would be something I'd love to see in the next ones. I love the thermite rifle. I thought it was a really cool weapon. And the basic idea of shooting a cloud of dust before you ignite it was so interesting because it's almost like antithetical to what a gun really is. Yeah. (laughs) But one of the points of, I won't say disappointment, but one of the points for potential in a sequel or just moving forward, but would have definitely been cool to see in this game as well is do you notice that for the thermite rifle specifically in the cutscenes they use it in different ways and you actually get to use it in the gameplay. And I would have loved to see that reflected back into the gameplay. Yeah. So like one example is you set the charge onto that barrel that's blocking your way and then you shoot it and it melts, it melts the barrel out. First of all, why don't I get to use the gun in puzzle puzzle solving methods like that where I'm playing it out in real time? That's awesome. No, I agree. I thought that would have been cool too. That's one of these things I have a problem with with a lot of games is they'll 
introduce gameplay mechanics and cutscenes and then never let you use them. Well, because it's it's almost like they're not actually introducing the gameplay mechanic, but they're introducing a world mechanic that could be a gameplay mechanic, and they just didn't have the foresight to, to think. Make it Wouldn't it be pretty cool if we could do that? Because like, um, have you played Days Gone yet? Yes. Oh, I love Days Gone. Here's here's my ideal system, and I still think it actually work in this game, even as a linear game, because there's a couple of spots where you have hallways that you can lure enemies down. Um, I would love the idea for you to get a thermite rifle and be able to either, of course, it would use ammo because you'd be using a disc. But essentially, if you could take the disc and you crouch behind cover and then mount it and then back up and then let enemies funnel towards it and then right the moment that you choose to fire at it Mm -hmm. so that you can get it to, you know, essentially do massive damage to all the enemies as a trap. That would be awesome. I always think about the moments in days gone where you get to like put a, a, you know, a small explosive on the log pile and then draw the hoarders towards you or the freakers and then roll them down on them. I think that moments like that are really cool, but even something simple where like, if you know that there's a crowd of enemies that are, that you can't get to push forward because they're being tactical, a way for you to be tactical back is to throw more of your ammo out there by taking the disc and aiming it essentially right into the middle of that group and then using your black sight to right in the moment shoot it in the middle of the crowd. That would be really cool. I agree. Yeah, there's and see, I don't know if you ever did it. That's actually something, and this is, again, they're, they're stumbling over something they already have in the game. One of the coolest use of, uh, uses of black sight, and I think it's what the trophy is for, is to shoot a grenade. Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. That's such a cool idea, and I used it. But why not do that with more stuff? I mean, uh, the thermite rifle, I think, is the clear example of could have been used for so much more because we see it used for so much more in this game. I'm shocked the thermite rifle wasn't a third gun that you always had. And then that was how, instead of the lock picking, you melted doors or something. That would have <laughs> been so interesting. That would have been cool. To be fair, I like the lock picking personally. <laughs> it was fine. I agree. You know, it is what it is. It's just a. It is, of course, growing pains of a game that probably had to be out, so they, at some point they just had to stop. But I think that these are cool things that a sequel could very much improve upon with right. this game. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Story. Story time. Story time is one I'm really interested to talk to you about because of all the other things I've talked about that I do think make this game really great in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but also do rest on some of the issues the game has i really think that this story is the big thing for this game i feel like every decision they made for the most part was an effort of trying to immerse you further into the world so that you therefore are more immersed into the story i agree with you this game is a shining example of story in video games i think Mm -hmm. i don't necessarily think that means the story is perfect but i think it tells the story perfectly if that makes sense (laughs) sure yeah it delivers an imperfect story in the in a perfect way yeah i mean the thing is like the story outside of the steampunk future tech stuff is kind of -of run-of-the-mill for werewolves and zombie and that kind of stuff but sure the way it's just the way they tell it and the backdrop of the knights is so brilliant like i don't even know how you come up with that um like that's really cool. Like, and it almost wouldn't surprise me if something like that existed in real life at one point. Yeah, like a group of people who are all around, highly trained knights and killers, basically. I think a big thing for me, and this is a big thing about all games, right? As we start to work into the story, is that 
when you're playing a game that's set in a past period, but with essentially a twist on it, mm-hmm. like we, we don't exactly know what 1886 looked like, but we have a good idea. And when you do this game, but then you give it these twists of like technology was further along, they had communicators and there's a clear style choice that comes from that technological advancement. We see guns that look both of their time, but also futuristic in their own interesting way. I love the idea and this is something I loved about the Resistance series as well, of looking back at a piece of time that we all know and recognize via clear markers like architecture and dress and whatnot, and saying, we're going to do this in a way that's alternate history, and we're going to look at something that's clearly existed, and we're going to put a spin on it. Mm-hmm. And Resistance, it was putting World War II into, instead of World War II happening, the aliens come and invade beforehand, so the world goes to hell because of that, and not because of World War II. And I love that idea, because it still sets you up with the military world that you would expect and it gives a reason for so many trained soldiers to be out and about but they get interrupted in this game i love the idea that you're looking back on something that we're all familiar with i mean i think every kid knows about the king arthur and the, and the knights of the round table yep and i love that this is such a novel take on the idea let's spin it around and give it to where the knights are real. They did exist. And they can, cont- the reason they existed the way they did was due to this elixir, which also makes sense when you think about the Holy grail and it just pushes it further and gives it a lot more depth and lore that can be manipulated in a way that is serving to a world that you can build around it. And I love that use. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm fascinated with alternate history because it's the best stories and not to mention that my my book is alternate history in a way so <laughs> i'm partial <laughs> i have a, i have a stake in that genre well so. you know what i think it is about alternate history is that so much of it is grounded in reality mm-hmm. that i think it's easier for people to immediately re- you know resonate with it and yeah. then from there you get to tweak it in ways that kind of defy the expectation that comes from the person who's seeing it and being like, well, I clearly know that this is London in 1886. Right. But then suddenly you throw a werewolf in there and a knight with a gun that clearly didn't exist there. And somehow, because you've done such a good job at immersing me in 1886 London, but also getting me ready with all the things I've been slowly getting introduced to, like the shoulder calm and seeing that, you know, a lot of stuff is clearly above hand. As you start to break from reality all you're doing is not taking me out of that reality. You're taking the reality I'm already familiar with and relating to, and you're pushing it and starting to merge it into what your reality is of your world. And it's used as an anchor point for me to get in. And suddenly I'm already vested into a story that I just got introduced to because it's based around something that we're all yeah, tangentially familiar with. That's the reason that what if Nazis won World War II is so prevalent because the Nazis are so hilariously evil that you can you could tell me that the Nazis created zombies by I don't know fucking putting acid in dogs' heads I would believe you you know and <laughs> yeah. if your whole story was that I would believe you and I think that's why alternate history works and that's why I kind of find alternate history this far back in the past fascinating because you could even go farther back to almost ancient Egypt and there's enough sketchy as it may be evidence that there was tech that we know back then just Mm -hmm. off hieroglyphics and cave drawings you know that you could almost set this exact game in fucking ancient egypt and i would believe it too you know yeah that's why alternate history works so well as a setting like you said because it takes what we know and twists it 
which I think is the basis of any good story. You know, if you can, you you can take someone like Iron Man and believe him because we know people like Iron Man. You know, we just don't know someone who flies in a suit, but we got Elon Musk. He's Iron Man. Like we know Tony Stark, right? uh, You know, regardless of if we know Iron Man as the hero, we know people who fit the bill. Otherwise, exactly. One thing that you said that I think is really interesting and that I've not really thought of until now is that a lot of the time that we get alternate history where they actually make pretty sweeping changes and just move on as if that's, you know, part of it. A lot of the time it is around world war two and world war. It's very seldom that it leaves the 20th century. Yeah. And I, for me personally, I think the reason for that is like I was saying, because the Nazis were so hilariously evil, they, you can make any changes and be like, well, the Nazis did it, you know? And I think that's why this is going to sound really bad. And I don't necessarily believe this, but it's why that setting is almost lazy at this point because you can do anything. There's so many conspiracy theories about Nazis that you could say that they had super soldiers and, Mm -hmm. you know, or they gave the world superpowers and now all of Batman and Superman are Nazi soldiers because the Nazis created them in labs. And there are, there are people who would believe you that that happened in real life because again, the Nazis were hilariously evil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I mean, and really I think that is why we so often see things resemble around world war two though. Again, an interesting thing of Sony and two of their games is that we see this one go further past into the 19th century uh, and then with uh, resistance, we see them go before World War II. So we don't see actually Hitler, and he doesn't show up in the game. But it sets the stage for essentially someone else besides the Nazis to come in and still wreak the same havoc on Earth. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because I think your mind naturally goes, "Well, World War II was already a hellish landscape." Yeah. So we can we can push past and see these aliens coming down, and again, you just you you end up merging these two realities until the, into this world, which is exactly what you yeah. want. You want people to be pulled into your world by way of however you can get them to humanize and relate with everything that you can. I mean, that's why even stories like the Lord of the Rings can come off and relate with people is that there's something that's naturally, I think in those it's, it's characters more than it is anything else. Um, Yeah. But of course, strong characters can do it, but so can worlds and so can leaning on original events that we're all used to, that we all know something about, you know? Yeah. And a lot, I I think the last point I'll make on world war two, because it's not necessarily related, but the big thing is World War II in that era is modern, but still not modern. So everything is foreign. You know what I mean? Sure. Where, yeah. you know, you don't have, you have cars, but we don't have those cars anymore. Our cars have brakes and seatbelts now. Uh, <laughs> so it's just stuff where like you, you can, you can set a thing in World War II and it looks familiar, but it looks different. So. Yeah, that's why no, you're right. I find no, right. this this that's honestly why I'm so impressed with this setting because it feels familiar but different in a way in, in in almost the same way where the tech and the crazy walkie-talkies and all this stuff feels believable for the time somehow. <laughs> 
Well, I, I like it too because it's like they find a way to still. I mean, of course, it's their rules and their law within this. So you that plays into your ability to suspend disbelief that this tech wouldn't be around. But it's also like you're not seeing walkie-talkies exactly as we use them. We see that, like you know, if you actually look into them, it's like a visual storytelling. You see right. that this is an older tech and that there are flaws with it, and it can be blocked and jammed just like ours can. But you are easy to in your mind just go through all the reasons as to why that could be happening because the way it's presented to you is older it's it's presented to you in a way where it's like it's clearly not of that time but at the same time it works it's kind of like the whole device that you use to break electrical circuits and just overpower them yes you immediately click with it because you're like it, it feels and looks right even though that's not really something that you'd think of at that point in time and it probably didn't exist in any degree at that point in time because there was no need for it but it's just like a, you went through so much trouble to make sure that it felt of your era and of the world that you're building towards me that it ends up working. Mm-hmm. I yeah. think another thing they do that really helps, and it's almost the same thing as the Nazis, except very obviously not, where Nikola Tesla was such a legendary creator, but mm-hmm. at the same time, nothing he did, I could be wrong about this, but nothing he did is really mainstream because of Edison and all that. Mm-hmm. So you could say that Nikola Tesla built anything and people would believe it because at this point he's a mythical figure. You know? You're right. So, Everybody always sees him as the underdog and the Edison thing. Yeah. Right. And people always act like, oh, well, Nikola Tesla believed in robots and all this kind of stuff. I don't know if that's true. I'm just pulling shit out of my ass for it. But my point <laughs> is that, like, if you told me that Nikola Tesla invented a lightsaber, but Edison used it to kill a bear, so nobody adopted it, I'd be like, yeah, okay, that sounds right, because that's <laughs> who Tesla and Edison were. Yeah. So, yeah, they kind of are their own mythological figures outside of who they actually were. Right. Yeah. All right, so I guess we're going to go ahead and actually start talking about the events. So as I said, the game opens up in this uh, later moment where you're seeing Galahad being you know, essentially tortured and questioned by his fellow brothers and you're unsure as to why and you go through and you break out and from there we go into there's one thing i really love about that Uh, the opening thing is called once a night the opening chapter and when you break out and then it goes back into the past where we kind of start the events that lead up to this it's called uh, always a night Mm-hmm. I just love like, small stuff like that where you actually go through and think about your chapter names and how people are going to read them and how they're sequentially going to be understood. I love stuff like that. I just thought it was really cool. Yeah. Chapter names are something that, especially in books, people don't think about very often. But I think if you do chapters right, they're the most important setting or set dressing, I guess, for your yeah. uh, story. You know, I find that. Yeah. Maybe I just overreact to them because, again, I, I write, but I just find that it's a very important way to set your scene. Well, I think it's, you know, like I can kind of pull in because, of course, I don't write, but I write music. Mm-hmm. And what they kind of talk about with music, right? And this is exactly what I think a, a, a chapter title is to the same thing as a song. Uh, in a song, they say that it, you what you want to try and do is have your first line be something that catches the listener's interest so that that it drives them to want to listen to the rest of it. It's like, you know, you pose a question or you introduce a a weird saying or something that catches them and makes them go, huh? And they just keep listening. And it's like, you know, if you can hook someone with your first line, the chance that they'll listen and continue listening and be, 
you know, it, it, not immersed, but be willing to hear out what you're doing in the song is there. And I think that the same is true of the chapter title. Like, you know, when you read a chapter and you see chapter one and then you see the name, that name is your first opportunity to really set the stage for what you want people to get yeah. essentially out of this. Absolutely. If you're a talented writer. Yes, I agree with you. It's kind of like you mentioned with the score thing where when they don't have them like you know when when a book doesn't have chapter titles at all or they're just not good they don't really like matter to anything mm-hmm. you almost it's almost like you don't notice it but when one's good you're also just like i really appreciate that <laughs> yeah absolutely it's just uh, i like uh, it, it's very important i think people get hung up on that but that's just me uh, no i think it's uh, important as well that's a big thing. and i mean because why Definitely in a video game, right? Like a book, you're going to have chapters. But in a video game, why even bother bringing up chapter names if you're not going, or bringing up chapters and splitting it into chapters if you're not going to say something with your chapter title? Well, I think you split it up into chapters to make it a little bit more digestible. You know, I think games are going for this like, oh, you can pick up and play for 20 minutes when they have chapters. You know, you get one chapter down, you're like, okay, I finished chapter one. And it's, I think it's a I also think it is an old habit, especially in video games, because you don't need it. You know, I don't. You don't see the the chapters in movies, even though they all have chapters. Yeah, sure. Um, but I think a game like this specifically warrants it because it would have been a lot harder for me to talk to you about this if I'd been like, "Yeah, well, I'm, I'm on the balcony and I just did this and I just shot like three guys. Now I'm looking through drawers." You know. No. Yeah. Instead of being like, I know what you mean. Twelve. <laughs> Yeah, certainly. Uh, but even then, I'd say like you, you kind of got to it a second ago. Is games don't need to do this? There are because of it's in a, it's an interactive thing. There are other ways that you can go about giving people a marker. There are more dynamic ways that you can go about giving people a marker of progression. I think in this game it works perfectly, and I think in the Uncharted games it's also pretty good, and I like it. Um, but we clearly know that games have existed a lot of the times with no need for a chapter and they find different ways to give you the same information of explaining how far you've gotten and giving you a sense of accomplishment in a small period of time. Because like you said, some people like that feeling of getting into a game, getting something accomplished, and then that way they feel like there's a drive to come back to it. Absolutely. But we go in, we, we start after all that situation. And we come into a situation where we're seeing the rebels in Mayfair, if I'm remembering correctly. And Galahad is going into the underground area. I'm trying to remember exactly the beginning of the game. Because <laughs> this is kind of like there's so much stuff going on in that particular situation. But we kind of see some stuff go on and we see what I would end up saying is like an unsavory reception to what goes on. <laughs> no, I wouldn't agree with that. We go through and we see that there are lichens that have destroyed buildings and public property, and it's it's putting a bad look uh, from a public standing of the order. And it's kind of here where the game introduces this idea of the order existing as a group of people who have a real goal and they have an illicit goal, mm-hmm. but at the same time they're getting t- intermingled with politics and politicians and societal characters in a way it weighs them down from the expectation of those things. So their duty often ends up getting interrupted to keep up appearances so that they continue to have the approval. And so it's, it kind of goes to show how bureaucracy can tend to be an issue when you're actually wanting to get something done. 
<laughs> for better or worse, that is bureaucracy's point is to stop you from making brash changes with no accountability. Yep. Government exists for gridlock. <laughs> so that's where we kind of get this introduction. And from there, I think that's when the game really starts to move in because the, the beginning part of the game is all about kind of getting an idea about what the half breeds are doing, what the rebellion's doing, setting up the people who are the groups that are kind of going to act as antagonists throughout this game. For sure. And when we go through there, that's a pretty lengthy stretch. I mean, they do a lot to kind of set that stuff up. But then we get to this point where we have uh, the roundtable meeting. We have Percival or Mallory, whoever you want to call him. That's the interesting thing about this game is everybody has two names. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, Sir Percival or Mallory goes up to Sir Lucan and he gets approval to go out and undertake a mission into Whitechapel. We end up getting to this point where we're introduced to the London hospital. Mm-hmm. We see everything that's going on in there. We get introduced to the Lycans in a real, real sense where we get to fight the elder. Yeah. And that's also where we start to learn. I think a lot about what the, you know, there's parts leading up that we see the black water in action. Like, you know, somebody gets shot and then like it leaves a scar in their arm or something and they drink the black water and we see it kind of heal over. But I think it's the first time that we see the real power of the black water when the, the elder picks up Isabeau or uh, our lady of grain and breaks her fucking back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was rough. Yeah. And there's kind of that push to like, make sure that you get her. And and it introduced again, a lot of lore that the game, it introduced it in its own way here subtly, but it also goes on to introduce it later. They actually say it, but I like that. You know, when you see the black water and you hear what it can do, you're kind of of this idea of like, well, couldn't he use his black water or, you know, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. And you see that he has to go out of his way to make her drink her black water. Yeah. And then later in the story, we do get to see that the black water is made of a mixture of the black water substance itself and your own blood. Yeah. I thought that was weird until they explained it. Where I'm like, I think there was one scene of someone dying and I'm like, why don't you just give him some of your little neck juice and save his <laughs> life? Yeah. And I love that, that, that they go into that because of course that's going to exist. If you see this magical elixir, it's like, why wouldn't you give it to everyone? Well, it's because, and, and I like that the story actually tries to brush up against this. I mean, I, I wouldn't say try it does, you know, it, it's, they kind of talk about how for all the good that their life are that the black elixir brings into their life. It also brings a lot of pain and sorrow in because it's like you naturally outlive those yeah. that do not partake of this you're always bound to it and you can't use it to save others because they have to be initiated in and you know they have to drink of the original black water and then mix it with their blood and then you always have to refill your your vial with your own blood i just think it's such a cool roundabout way to explain why this has to be a select group of people and the costs that come alongside that yeah it's also a cool way of saying like this is why you heal in combat you know because a lot of games don't do that you just kind of your health just regenerates where I like whether than this one, your health does regenerate obviously, but I like that when you take a, a hit, you have that chance to come back. It kind of just makes it a little bit more immersive. Yeah. It's kind of like, I think it's borderlands, the second win mechanic, Yeah, but there's an actual reason for it (laughs) because it's like you have to get down and you have to crawl to cover so that you don't get shot again, which will kill you. And then you have to drink it and kind of bring yourself back up. It's a great way to merge gameplay mechanics and lore 
in a way that helps all of that jive together in a way that feels accounted for. And again, it's one of the big pushes of this game is a sense of groundedness and reality within this clearly false world. I appreciate when you take that extra effort to convince me that this is real when I know it's not, you know? It's so hard to really get to the point where you really think it's real, but it's about making it to where you're never questioning that it's not real. Even if you know in the back of your head it's not real, you're never constantly being like, this is obviously bullshit well that's the sign of a good story is if you can believe the story and in this one i could believe the story and that's a good thing about following and setting rules Uh, and i think a lot of games actually lose that naturally and a lot of that comes down to story um there's a guy on youtube that i cannot for the life of me i think the closer look maybe what is channel is called i've only seen a couple of his videos but he has one that's talking about skyrim and death stranding and why he thinks that skyrim's magic system is broken and death stranding is fantastic in that world in that regard go check it out if you're more interested in it but essentially what he argues is that skyrim's world does not account for its magic but death stranding's world accounts for its for lack of a better word it's, it's magic you know it's world's mechanics that are unique to that world impact the world and you see the world account for that and everything is cyclical within it but when you have a game like skyrim his go-to example just to be quick of uh one of the worst parts of skyrim is where you get thrown in jail and they take all your weapons but every person on a novice spell within the world the novice spell of bound sword exists and you can just conjure a sword and break your way out (laughs) If the game knows this magic exists in its world, then if they put people in here and take their weapons, the fact that there's a potion in the game to inhibit magical ability, why would they not utilize it here? All po- all prisoners get a dose of magic inhibiting potion. You know, like you said, this game overcomes that, and it's like, no, we are saying that this is what the rules are, and we're going to adhere to these rules so that you believe it because we believe it. <laughs> exactly, we set this up, so we're going to continue with it. I respect that a lot from this game. And I guess I should say, Chris, you know, I think we did a little more dynamically with The Last of Us 2. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the best way to kind of approach talking about this story. Um, And I I figured this kind of quick way to brush up against it might work best. But if there's any point of the story that you'd rather just hone in on, by all means, feel free to just kind of hover in on what you think are the most important parts and kind of cover them. Yeah, I guess for me, I would say, honestly, the most important parts are the airship that Galahad going off with Lakshmi. And then the ending, I feel like if we hit those points, we hit everything in the story. You know what I mean? Fair. Yeah, I agree. I think that that's a good way to go about it. So I think that that, that's what we'll do to approach it because it's the next thing coming up anyway is the airship. The airship is kind of the start of where the game starts to make you question everything. And that's when, you know, the, the first act of, of course, is setting everything up. And I feel like this is where we really get into the second act of the story. Mm hmm. So as we're moving forward, we see the airship, you know, we're going with Percival. We're trying to figure out, we're trying to understand what's going on. And then amidst all this, you see Percival's willingness to try and talk with the person of the, of the rebellion end up being some form of a, I guess we see it be his undoing ultimately. And I think that that ignites something in Grayson that helps the story move forward. So that is the big moment that that takes Grayson and makes him start to question the order, or at least puts him on the path to start questioning the order as he goes to look up and find Laxmi on his vendetta. And actually I feel like we'd be remiss in this to not kind of talk about the airship leading directly also into 
specifically the bridge scene. Yes, I would agree with you. The, the bridge part is so amazing to me. It's just, you're seeing this man who's just fueled by vengeance go through it. It's a super fun gameplay section where you're just getting a lot of variety and going through and capping people off and having to fight people that have got, you know, remote cannons, things. And it's a really great moment. And it leads us into the fact that we go back towards Whitechapel as we sit there and basically you know, berate this guy to tell us where she's at. Yeah. Uh, and then we leave the order behind as we go and we seek answers on our own and i like it's kind of the vigilante justice right it's like we're going to take matters into our own hand and go seek justice on our own (laughs) yeah i was a big fan of that yeah it's it's very batman of galahad (laughs) (laughs) i'm galahad where are they (laughs) you're right that the bridge was really fun i think that was one of the better gunfights i liked the backing of just a grain being like galahad come back dude (laughs) like i just really liked that where everyone's like dude i know what you're doing you need to stop or you're gonna get yourself killed yeah you know i I feel like one of the things we kind of brushed over a little too quickly because it is a big character motivation thing right is um the the beginning of the game we're kind of seeing uh this i I guess it wouldn't be a what is a a quadrio what what do you call a quartet quartet yes we have you have a quartet that you're dealing with you know you have you're you're getting introduced to lafayette who's clearly not as into this he's still newer we see lady of grain we see percival and we see grayson yeah but then the game the game of course whittles down to the trio and i I love that part of making the trio still feel (laughs) interesting is that In the trio, you end up still having Percival because Lafayette ends up taking on the name. But it does kind of bring this game down to a solemn trio. And uh, there's a scene when they're after Mallory's death, when they're going down the elevator and Grayson's having to kind of confirm Percival's belongings. That is just, it it really, I feel like it sells that, you know, it kind of acts as a moment where you see these three characters coming together in a different way. Mm -hmm. And all of that plays into, you know, Isabeau and our lady of grain, whatever you want to call her and Grayson's relationship that is kind of teased throughout this entire game plays a big part. in you know, the events that fold out and that's, that's a, that's important. And I personally like that. I would say that the game could always have done more to make you still feel more for these trio of characters. But I think that in its runtime, the game did a really good job of making you care about Lafayette, Isabeau, Grayson and Mallory and Mallory of course is around for the least amount of time. Yeah, I agree. Bridge scene, of course, leads us into where Galahad takes off his order garb, not to leave the order necessarily, but to not go and do stuff on with you know the mark of the order on him. He's doing it as a free agent. Yeah, definitely. And I, I thought that was interesting, but that was one of the few times where I'm like, "Oh, you're setting yourself up, my guy." <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, like just. It ends up playing out in the game where you leave your stuff behind and then everyone suspects you. He leaves his stuff behind in a rebel bar, which is why Igraine thinks that he's doing something wrong, which <laughs> she's yeah. right, technically, although he's in he's in the right, but she is also correct given her knowledge. So I think that's just one of those things where... It's kind of like, why would you leave this just on the bar? (laughs) I get what you mean. I I guess the question then becomes, why would you do it? Like you're saying. So if the question becomes that and you kind of look at the further game for answers, this is a man who's clearly out of his mind for the moment. You know, he's on vengeance. He's, He's mourning the loss of a friend. He's acting irrationally as a result. But the thing that is cool is that we end up in this situation where it leads him to a point where he feels like he can afford 
to let her just take him on this chase that's potentially a goose chase. Because at this point, he either needs answers to feel like Mallory's death is justified and leading towards something that can at least be for the greater good or worst case scenario or maybe best case scenario in the mindset that he has is that he gets to enact revenge on her. So when you're kind of existing in that realm, I like that it's not, you you wouldn't think, Oh, why would he do that? That's stupid because he's clearly not in his mind. Like he's, he's not in his right mind. Whereas if he had done that earlier in the game without the motivation of Mallory's death to kind of guide him, I would be much more inclined to land on the same side. Yeah, though there's definitely just a justification. I just, Always get annoyed when smart characters do dumb shit. (laughs) Fair. But I don't think that's that big of a thing. So, of course, we get into one of the big twists of the game. Mm -hmm. As we start to understand that Lord Hastings and the United India Company, to some degree, are involved, whether they know it or not at the time, in the shipment of vampires. And I thought this was great, because this is kind of the way to... You kind of get into that area where in your mind you're like, well, if if lichens exist in this world, why wouldn't other supernatural beings exist? For sure. (laughs) So why not introduce vampires? I thought that was cool. And I I think this kind of leads to that thing of where a lot of people thought the game was going to just be about lichens. And there's that disappointment that comes from not enough interaction with lichens from a gameplay standpoint. But then I think some people were probably disappointed for the fact that you introduce vampires, but they don't come into the gameplay at all, which I think was a clear goal of the sequel. Mm -hmm. So, of course, as we go through and we see that go on, it leads to this point of where they want to know more about everything going on. And naturally, that leads us to the fact that everything that happens at Lord Hastings, which ends up leading us to the opening scene of why he's being kind of disowned from the order and questioned for his allegiance and seeing if they can find information out about the rebellion. It kind of spearheads us all to what the end of the game is. So coming back to that scene, the same way that we do in uncharted Two, right? Where it's coming back to the scene with all the context that goes with it. I like one thing about that. Unlike Uncharted 2, you didn't have to do all the stuff that you'd already done again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. Don't get me wrong. Cool the first time around. I don't really want to get drowned and then have to stab a dude in the neck and then wander through the hall and then climb. You know, it's, it's, it's all much to do about nothing at that point. It's like, why are you making me do something I clearly already know? So I like exactly. that it takes the approach of more picking you up where the original flashback left off. No, I get you. I think that that scene is cool for a lot of reasons. I think it sets up Grayson in such an interesting way. It gives us the reason as to why he would still have his, well, kind of, because he goes and gets it. (laughs) I like that they go through the process of making sure that you get your black water so that it makes sense as to why you still have it. Yeah. Uh, And then you go off the bridge. And a lot of this is interesting because clearly we start to figure out that Tesla has been working with the rebellion. I like that that also introduces a lot of stuff, right? Because it pulls Tesla out and, and he's worried about you because he's just, he's the boy, you know, as the game shows big you. Homie. Yeah, he's, he's big homie. So he comes out to check on you and it sets so much stuff in motion, right? It sets the exact events where they end up. It sets the fact that he goes away and becomes, everybody becomes suspicious of the fact that he is helping because he's been gone for too long. Right mm-hmm. around the same time that Galahad leaves, we see that Galahad has left and clearly got help from someone. So you start to pile the pieces back together. And the whole reason that you go back is to save Tesla. 
you know, your whole thing is we're going to get Nicola, we're going to get out of there. Yes. That leads us, of course, to the very end, which I feel like we brushed on a little bit, but we didn't brush on completely. So we get to the point where we go and we save Tesla and we, we end up fighting Lucan. And that's when the story drops probably the biggest bomb on us that Lucan is, of course, a werewolf, but that the entire time, the guy who essentially acts as the head of the, the Lord Chancellor, as it were, he ends up knowing this all along that Lucan was a half-breed or yeah. rather a... Uh, whatever you call them, a lichen, a full-on. And that brings up a lot of implications, right? Because a lot of this game is about this kind of letting politics bleed in and doing things for the right, for the sake of other things. And it starts to make you doubt the Lord Chancellor and his motivations and how much of this he was aware of and complicit in. Oh, definitely. I didn't trust him at all. And it brings Mallory's original things back into place, right? You know, like... One of the things that Mallory says is that the order may not be thinking correctly, you know, and maybe blinded. And then we see that echoed kind of in the way that we see after his death, we see Grayson or Galahad do the same thing. We see him kind of react and rebel and push against the order and the fact that they're remaining complacent in the face of all this due to bureaucracy and essentially nothing else. (laughs) Yeah. Which I, I don't know. I, think they kind of overplayed him a little bit because i thought it was very obvious that he was a bad guy oh lord chancellor yeah lord chancellor so i'm like you're just being like galahad is one of the oldest guys there if i recall it's like him and mallory were like the longest tenured knights right well, they were definitely high up there. You know, we don't get to meet all the knights, even though I do like that they go out of their way to kind of set the round table up and show yeah. the votes uh, and kind of give you a scale of how many knights there are as they have to vote for whether or not Grayson is guilty. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It just seems to, it just seemed weird to me that you wouldn't give more of a benefit of a doubt to Galahad. So I kind of was suspicious for him from the beginning. Sure. But I will say the twist with Lucan surprised me because I thought the Chancellor was a, was a Lycan. So I just thought Lucan was going to betray you. And then when he's the one who is the Lycan, I was like, oh, shit, I didn't really see that coming. Yeah. I like all of that setup, you know, because not that this is what they were going for. But it's kind of interesting that this is essentially the Dexter thing, right? It's <laughs> the the serial killer show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it's essentially an older guy who's part of an organization who tries to stop these things ends up finding a kid whose parents were slaughtered in a gruesome way. And even though they were always going to turn out a way that you knew they were going to turn out, you try to take them in and control Change it them. and contain it to some degree. And then when you knew that you couldn't, you had to accept them for who they are because you had already loved them at that point. Yeah. I guess the one weird thing I would say about that and Lucan is it's a little disappointing that uh, maybe not disappointing, but I think like it's a missed opportunity to not have like the order with their own team of werewolves, you know? And that would have been interesting, an interesting way to take Lucan. I like the way his story went. I just thought it was a little odd. You're, I, I like the story too, but I have thought before, like what would happen if this was a, a way where suddenly he's revealed, but it's like the order. Cause the game kind of brushes on that, right? The idea that the order needs to change. Mm-hmm. Now, of course it's talking about the order needing to change and how it deals with being part of society and the governmental side of things, you know, cause of course, the Knights of the Round Table have always been to the Queen. 
Yes. But as that's moved on and government has continued to change, we see how they've changed with it and how they've basically become like little legs of the bodyguards. You yeah, know? pretty much. So it's like what they really are is not what they should be. So you kind of see that going in it, you know, essentially make the order great again. <laughs> You got a little bit of that going on, but there's also the opportunity for them to kind of swing in the opposite way, right? Where what they did was like that the order needs to change, but then clearly they're not going to change. So we're going to essentially start Galahad's order. And it seems like there was, because we clearly know that there's, uh, there has to be other ex-knights out there, then it seems like we're going to start working on getting the other ex-knights together um and kind of creating our own order and moving forward with their version of what it is but it would have been interesting to explore the order from the side of embracing what you've always been against and using it as an asset right because then you get i don't that know question. which one's better of course but no i just think it's a little interesting to have that question of like are the lichens or the vampires worse you mm-hmm. know and then that kind of helps you answer that and it turns out that maybe vampires have, uh, you know, been able to live in the shadows a little bit more than the half breeds have. Mm-hmm. And this is where two uneasy allies come together to realize that actually the the worst threat all along was the vampires. Exactly. Yeah, and you know the thing is, is I don't necessarily think that the possibility for that to be explored is gone clearly, but the possibility to do it with Lucan while still keeping a character that I think many people liked alive is interesting. But I also like. To be fair, I do like the stakes that killing off Lucan has because there's something to be said about killing off characters that are integral to a first story and having to deal with that. You know, there's something, one of the things that's one of the downsides to the Uncharted series mm-hmm. is that because it's the type of game it is and it doesn't go too serious in its tone, that probably the most serious they've gone being Uncharted 4. There's always this sense that you know it's always going to come out sunny side up and that the roses are always going to be going. You know, no one ever really dies. And if they die, they were a bad guy 100% and nobody liked them or they brought it on themselves. And it's never one of the main people. And I or like the a idea. Of, yeah. I always like the idea of having Luke and be a main character, one that we see and interact with throughout the game a lot and we build a sense of trust with. And even though that trust is ultimately broken i still like that we that they eventually come around to seeing a character that you don't necessarily want to die but having to kill him it's a ballsy move i think it has a a big impact on the world and it also it shows a maturity that i think the uncharted games lack not because uh, not that it's a bad thing it's just they clearly made two different decisions on what they wanted this to be Mm mm-hmm and I feel like death as a consequence of all these things eventually has to come at some point. Um, I think the only thing I'm a little disappointed in that that wasn't really explored but could have been explored in, the, in a further game is what happens when you give the Lycans the elixir that the people who have fought the Lycans deal with? You know, what happens there? Is there anything? Uh, you know, did the Blackwater react differently to Lucan? Did Lucan even actually have it? I just feel like there's some implications that come from like, it would have been interesting in the story to try and look at what happens when one of them gets that far embedded into your own organization. Yeah. And what, what comes from the fall. I I mean, again, I just think it's interesting for the lore. Like I'll give them credit. Blackwater is probably as fleshed out as it needs to be. Yeah. I don't need it. Didn't need much more from that, but it does introduce interesting things because, you know, when you think of an organization that from the ground up is built to, 
essentially fight the lichens off. One cool thing to kind of introduce, and this could still be something they wanted to do in the sequel, is that you learn that maybe the black water is also a substance that has ties to the ancestry of the original lichens. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah, and you're kind of having two factions that are fighting each other from a misinterpreted standpoint of what their origins are. Yeah, like they're humans, but they also have lichen blood now because they all took the black water. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of ways that you could go with it, but it's just an interesting idea that if you root two different, completely two very different outcomes to one same central thing, there's a lot to explore within that and what it means. Uh, or maybe you could even juxtapose it and have it be that you know lichens come from their own form. And what and this game definitely makes a, an attempt, if I'm being honest, to make you look at the fact, and it's kind of what we talked about earlier, but the order in their own way are essentially monsters. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. They are going through and doing things that they believe they have like righteous indignation for. And it doesn't really matter what else is going on because they are. So they kind of exist in this immunity. And, and, and I think it'd be kind of cool. Uh, you know, again, this is kind of talk at this point about either what they could have done with the ending of this one, or if nothing else, what they could do moving forward in the sequel, which I think a sequel is fine, but it'd be interesting if you kind of explore further than this game did, even though I appreciated it and what taking the black water does to your humanity. And that in pursuit of what, of, of killing off what you consider to be monsters and beasts of the lichens. Are you becoming a monster? Yeah, I would be interested in that. I like the idea of some things just not being explained. And I think the black water is a good example of that, where it's just an elixir, you know? Yeah, I think once you go too complicated, you end up risking. You, you actually ruin the, the yeah, magic of it. Exactly, because uh, to me, it's one of those like I don't need to know what water is in the fountain of youth kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like all we need to know is that when you drink it, it makes you young. Yeah, unless the twist is that they're all like vampires at this point because they're so old and the black water was keeping it down but they're just immortal you know yeah i mean you know because like bringing in your your fountain of youth thing right i think that if you look and you go well what you know what's the fountain of youth well you know when you drink it you are young and you know they what's the cost well the cost is having to get there you know it's uh it's not something that's easy to get to it's arduous but i think that one of the ways you can look and go well, adding to it can take away from it, but adding to it also can help it in a way. You know, and it, it depends. And it, of course, it's something that's going to land different with every person. But I think there's an argument to be made just using the fountain of youth as an example. If you take it a layer further by going, well, again, what's the cost of the fountain of youth? You know, uh, if you look at it, it'd be interesting if they kind of approach it from a standpoint where drinking of the fountain of youth pull something from someone else like there's a cost from it mm -hmm. like you know maybe you get to the water and the way that you do an interesting spin on the fountain of youth is that you learn that to end up benefiting from it you actually have to sacrifice someone in the water that you the you know, person that you give to the water you essentially take on their years and you, you <laughs> i was gonna say euthanize yourself but <laughs> <laughs> that's not the word no <laughs> But yeah, I mean, so what I mean is that clearly there are ways that you can you can look at stuff like this, and the way that you add to it is not to try and I, I don't know. Technically, you are giving it a back. You, you don't have to explain why it's that way, but you're giving it an interesting cost. And I mean, that cost is already being 
at least explored tangentially here, the mm-hmm. cost of humanity, the cost. And, you know, you see before Lafayette actually becomes uh, knighted and gets his black water that there's this symptom of like, do you really want to be cursed to this life? And you see that also with Isabeau and Lucan, where you kind of have them going, you know, why did you have people talking and saying like, why would you want to, or why would the Lord Chancellor want his kids to be cursed with the same life as him? So I guess my only rebuttal would be that the punishment or the cost is that you live forever. A lot of people are like, Oh, I'd love to live forever. And I'm like, I don't think you would. You know, eventually, eventually you lose everyone you knew. And then now you just, it's not like you be reborn. You're just this old motherfucker with no friends, <laughs> you know, and that's just your life. Yeah. And we definitely see that. Like, you know, we see that with the idea of, of heroes and stuff and other storylines. We see that and how it plays out and the effects of Wolverine and the fact that Wolverine lives for so long and sees generations of people go by him. So, I mean, it's definitely something that can be done there. And, I'm not saying that this doesn't have, I like that they kind of talk about that. There is a thing of with this elixir comes immortality, but with immortality comes, you know, the, the passing of people who aren't on the same level of you, your friends are going to have to naturally be people within the order. But even they even talk about there, you know, the black water can, can cure amazing things, but ultimately it can't bring you back from death. So Mm -hmm. death is still not an, uh, death is still not an uncertainty, you know, our death is an un- a certainty as some degree, even with this. So I guess it's just trying to think in my own mind of where you'd want to push forward with it. So I, I will pose you an interesting question. And this is primarily because I want to see your quick solution, if you can, on not – it doesn't have to be crazy. But if you okay. had to set up – if and I, it's probably set up. If you had to set up – so essentially the first act or maybe even the opening of a sequel to this game in the way that you view, like the way you go about writing, what would be your way of setting up a sequel based off of what you've learned in this game? Um, I would set the first half of the order chasing Galahad and you seeing what he's doing, but from the order's perspective. And then I would go back. So I would do like the first third of it is the of the order going after Galad, and then the rest of it is from the beginning to the end of what Galahad's been doing. So who do you play as whenever you're seeing what Galahad's doing? Igraine mm. or Lafayette, either of them. But I think Igraine would be more interesting because she basically takes the role of Galahad, except a different type of revenge. You know. Mm-hmm. So her whole story is she's desperate to find Galahad. So I, I feel like it would be interesting to play her. You find Galahad and then that's where the story splits. You go back, you find out the backstory of this is what's been going on. This is what he's been doing. And then you could you could fast forward back up to that part where you guys meet and then continue the game on from there of him being like, no, I have the evidence. Here you go. Here's everything. And then they join together. I think that would be interesting. I could see that. And I, you know, as much as some people didn't like it or didn't like the idea prior to it in The Last of Us 2, I like the idea that playing as a green is a much younger and, and slimmer and just all around more brisk person would have a big uh, impact on the gameplay. You know, you wouldn't be this lumbering older guy that we see. And we even hear in the first game, a grain's like, you know, I'm younger than you and <laughs> more agile and nimble. Yeah. And I, it would be kind of cool to have moments kind of like what the last of us does, which I won't spoil the last of us. But of course, when the game suddenly switches and you're playing as 
in a way that's so juxtaposed in the way you've been playing yeah. you could do a lot of that here where suddenly you know the, for the first third of the game you're playing as this one character before you get back in the shoes of the key, of the character you were already familiar with definitely definitely well all right man hey <sighs> you know this is a very interesting game, and I love talking about it. And honestly, it, as dumb as it sounds, I could talk about it for hours. <laughs> I know. I see that. <laughs> <laughs> I see that, too. Uh, I, I don't know how to really describe it. I think that one of the things that comes around with things like this is there is media that I don't uh, – there's media that comes in certain people's lifetimes and just t- – for that person, for some reason, it touches them in a way that they almost can't even understand. And this has happened to me a few times. I can tell you a million times that the original Nier game is flawed, and it is. It's still one of my absolute favorite games of all time. Mm-hmm. And there's there's something about it. There's a charm to it that even though the flaws are there, you can look past them because of all the other stuff going on. And I feel like the order is an epitome of that. It's a great example of seeing something that has so much charm and so much care and so much love put into the story and the characters and the thought behind it and the world that they're trying to build up. I think that's what makes it both endearing, but it's also what makes it so painful to see no follow-up to. So I think part of it too is that feeling of something comes out and much like near, it doesn't perform well to begin with, but then eventually you get a group of people who come and play it after the fact and find that they really love it. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, in Nier's case, another game finally did come. And I kind of rest hope. You know, I remember playing Nier before this and thinking, we'll never get another Nier game. <laughs> and lo and behold, about six years, seven years later, it came. And that's amazing. Yeah. I, I guess what I should say is the cool thing about that is I think if you're vocal enough and you show your support enough that anything's possible. So whether or not the Order 1887 is already in development and we end up seeing it eventually, we'll never know until it finally does come. Whether or not the Order 1887 as made by the original team at Ready at Dawn who poured so much time and care into this can happen also remains to be seen. But I know that where I'll end this off personally, this game is such a craft of love that I can see that I, there is no way in hell that I would let this, a sequel to this game be made by anybody other than at least the creative lead who was over this game. Like, you know, maybe it can't be ready at dawn, but if whoever was the main creative lead for this, which I think was Rue was or whatever the hell his name is. Um, sorry. I know I just mispronounced it, but he's the, the owner and, and director for the game. I think that there's something to be said. I would love for the entire original team to come back and get to finally put the work that they were building into to use. But there's just something about it. A lot of people have this feeling where Naughty Dog can come in and make the Order 1887 and make it great. And I'm not saying that Naughty Dog could come in and make the Order 1887 in name and it be a good game, but it won't be the Order 1887 to me because it won't be what ready at dawn intended yeah i think that's a solid capper i I hope they get their chance to make one i don't think it's nearly as likely as you seem to but oh i don't think it's likely it's just a seed of hope i refuse to let go of you're trying to manifest it i am trying to manifest it i think about it every day (laughs) and that's not hyperbole i really do think about it often I think about plenty of things in life that come and go that are full of potential and just don't ever get to have that potential realized. And I think that this is wrong place, wrong time kind of syndrome for this game. Yeah, I agree with that. I I think that there's a little bit of a feeling that I have that, and I've I've seen this echoed from a couple of other people, one of our listeners, um, Gideon, 
has uh, said that he thinks that if the order 1886 came out in 2018, everybody would have loved it. And I don't think he's entirely wrong. I could see that. I don't know. Again, I just think if it was, if it was cheaper, it would have been a nine or a 10 back then. So I think maybe, uh, and I, I definitely think that the price versus length is a big deal. But I think the other thing is that the expectation for open worlds was so high at the time, and the idea of having games that were just so big and massive in scale because next gen could do it was a big deal. Yeah. And as we've gotten further into this gen, a lot of people's favorite games are much smaller and tighter experiences. So there's been definitely, there became a point where open world became a bit of a tiring thing where people got fatigued from it so people longed for this return back to straight storyline games that are just you know a great game in a package that you know what you're getting into and i think that there's a real want for that and i think that we saw that shrink down to something like you see in god of war and the last of us 2 where you see like a 25 to 30 hour uh, linear story but i think that even with as good as those games were or as good as god of war was and divisive as the last of us 2 was I think that there's a clear understanding that there is a need for certain games to come back and do something closer to what the order did, or even just what the original uncharted did, you know, give a 12 hour great story and don't worry about all the frills of trying to be too much. And I think that there's a real niche, not even a niche. I think there's actually a fairly large size of the market that really want that. And maybe even the entire market wants that, but they just want it. Not all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's There's a place for your, these games. It's about picking your time, and Sony didn't pick a good time for this game. Yep. So, all right, well, Chris, man, thanks for joining me. I appreciate hey, it. Thanks I, you for taking me on a trip down the Order 1886 lane. <laughs> you're welcome. I'm going to tell you right now, I did not anticipate this to be three hours. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> and I'm also going to thank you for just listening to me, because I know... That 90% of that is because I won't shut the fuck up about this game. <laughs> there was a point where I was just like, uh-huh, yep, keep going. That's totally cool. <laughs> How long can we go? <laughs> yeah, I was like looking at the runtime, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be fun for him to edit. <laughs> yep, thankfully I'm editing this one, right? Yeah, right, seriously. I'm going to cut an hour of me just bullshitting out. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good discussion, though definitely so i think the last thing we have is to go ahead and let people know what we're going to be doing next which i think we have both landed on uh we're going to be doing spider-man miles morales next hey so that's going to be a brand new game spoderman <laughs> spoderman so check that out uh it will probably be up we're going to try and make that one a little more timely towards release since it is a new game uh so we'll probably have that up by the end of the month so keep an eye out for that that gives you a couple of weeks to play it as well and then we can all get together and kind of have a discussion about where insomniac takes that franchise from the first one so you can chit chat that'll be fun that'll be kind of a weird expansion off of uh Saul and I's original impressions of the first spider-man game i'm excited so, all right, Chris. Well, I look forward to getting back with you and seeing what they've done with that game. And if you want to check out the main podcast, <laughs> you can find us every Monday on YouTube and video format or podcast services where you might be listening to this. And of course, 
if you want to support the show with more than just your time, which we are always so grateful for, you can head over to patreon.com slash Nartech and consider giving as little as a dollar per month to get your name shouted out at the end of content. Uh, you can also, at certain dollar amounts, get custom cases for games. I don't have one. Well, actually, I do have one for the Order 1886 if you want to go get it. <laughs> and... Uh, of course, the the last thing is just reading off our patrons. So without further ado, we'd like to give a big shout out. Thank you to Kyle Grimm, Josh Jarrell, Matthew Green. My name is Dan, Luke Bartolomeo, Sean Santarude, Funk Turkey, Danny Villiobos, Corey Hickerson, Blake Popst, Kevin Bacon Bits, Joshua Lago, Eric McAllister, Shadowist, Stephen Salazar, The Stonard, Travis Below, Tr- Stefan Swanland, Constantly Kenny, Solitary Red, Chris Figs, Zachary Sawyer, Landis, Rude Days 93, Brian, Donovan Williams, William Digital Spooker, Derek Porter, Josh Ayers, Brandon Edwards, Sean One Neo, Tyler Powers, El Chabib, Jason Clendenning, Tyler B., and Richard Schaefer. Thank you. <laughs>